5.30 to start the meeting on time, but um, Council Member Herrera-Spencer needed to leave to talk to staff who I guess aren't here. Um, oh no, she was at the Edison School event last night, although she arrived there late too. But um, has anyone heard from Tracy? And I talked to Malia earlier. I'll text Malia. I just, uh, I'm stressing a little because we have a very packed agenda and um, uh, I would like to get through all these items that we have and um, I, um, and by the way, just to let staff who might not know, know, I got an email from one of our um, planning board members, Teresa Ruiz, to let me know that Boy Scout Troop 1015 will be here tonight. They're um, attending the meeting as they work on their Citizens of the Community Merit Badge. So they'll get to, they'll get to see the council in action and, and I know a lot of their parents will be here too. I um, actually spoke to this, their group. Um, and you know, scouts are now boys and girls. And so um, I spoke to a big group of them. Uh, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, I don't know, <laughs> recently. And they just had lots of great questions to ask. So um, yeah, it'll be nice. So, okay. I have to say, You did, okay. Yeah. And you tested. The uh, street, uh, what did they call it? The f they closed off the, the block um, winter winter market, that's not quite the right word. Mm -hmm. Did you know that CBS did a segment on it? Oh, no. oh a friend of mine in San Francisco uh, texted me the clip, I'll, I will forward it to you. That's this really nice, um, nice, uh, um, um, nice coverage, so yeah. And you've texted both Tracy and Malia, okay. I just um, emailed back to Teresa to ask if one or two of the scouts would like to lead us in a play. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Are you available now, Council Member Harris Spencer? Yeah. Oh, perfect. Sure. Oh, which charger do you need? For your phone? No, no. Um, okay. So okay. we can do roll call and get through the announcement. We can do that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well then, um, 
Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the City of Alameda City Council meeting. Today is Tuesday, December 5th, 2023, and um, we are about to go into closed session. But now that we have a quorum, I would like to ask our city um, clerk, Laura Weisinger, to please call the roll. Vice Mayor Dayson? Here. Councilmember Horace Spencer? Present. Mayor Ezzie Ashcraft? Present. Three present, and hopefully uh, Councilmembers Jensen and Bella will be here momentarily. Three down, two to go. And Madam Clerk, do we have any public comment on closed session items only? We do not. All right, with that, I will close public comment on closed session items. And I would like to ask the city clerk to please um, introduce the items that we will consider in closed session. At 3A is conference with labor negotiators pursuant to government code section 54957.6. The city negotiators are the city manager, human resources director, outside counsel, and deputy city attorney. Employee organization is the International Association of Firefighters Local 689. Under negotiation is salary, employee benefits, and terms of employment. 3B is conference with legal counsel existing litigation pursuant to government code section 549569A. Case name is City of Alameda versus Sheehan. Court, Superior Court of the County of Alameda. Case number 22CV009959, 23CV037442, 23CV038384. And in the Court of the Court of Appeals of the State of California, First Appellate District Division Two, the case number is A one six eight three hundred. Thank you, um, uh, Madam Clerk. And so, with that, we will adjourn into closed session to hear those two items. And I would actually like to start with um, item three B first. So, could we have whoever the council are on that one join us um, in the three ninety one? Thank you. Okay, you've got a minute, but <laughs> all right. So nice. I guess it's a little long in here, but there's a lot of people, right? All right, my um, iPad says it's 7, 7 p.m. So um, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the City Council meeting for the City of Alameda. Tonight is Tuesday, December 5th, 2023, and the council has just returned from closed session. And so I would like to ask our city clerk, Lara Weisiger, to please report on actions, if any, taken in closed session. Um, regarding item 3A, which was labor negotiations for the International, Assist in International Association of Firefighters, um, staff provided a information and there was no vote taken by council. Um, regarding uh, six, or 3B, which was, is the uh, City of Alameda versus Sheehan cases, um, staff provided information and council provided direction um, by the a vote of four to one with uh, council member Herrera Spencer voting now. All right, and with that, thank you, um, Madam Clerk, and with that, I will adjourn the special uh, council meeting, the closed session. And just before I call the regular uh, council meeting to order, I want to just go over our rules of procedure for council meetings. We have, and I'd love to see this, a big, um, robust crowd and lots of folks here to speak on different items. So I just want to remind everyone that this is a business meeting, and we're here to respectfully listen to 
everyone's comments and respect everyone's point of view by just listening. We don't applaud because it's not the theater. We don't boo. We don't cheer. We don't do the wave. We just speak for our allotted time, and the city clerk will help you to know what it is. Um, posters are lovely, and I see them. My only request is don't hold them up above your head unless you're in the very last row because the people behind you want to be able to see. But chin lengths, face face height is fine, although I love to see your nice faces. But um, if you do that, we will we will get through the meeting. There's a timer, and so we, when your time is up, we ask you to leave the microphone. And I will just say that Alameda um, audiences are, I believe, the best. So um, I'm sure we'll have another uh, great and informative meeting. Um, and I also want to uh, let everyone know that we have s some special guests. You're all special. But we also have <laughs> Scout Troop. You are all special. Um, we have Scout Troop 1015 joining us today because they are working on their governance in the community. What's the citizenship in the community um, badge? And you know, Scouts are now both boys and girls, and we have them here. They're, um, some of their representatives are, are about to lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance, but this is their opportunity to see government, local government in action. They're elected representatives, people, you know, public speakers, some really topical current issues. So I'm, I'm very excited to have all of you here this evening. So with that, um, we're going to start with the Pledge of Allegiance. So who are my representatives from Troop 1015 who are going to come forward? Come on up. And what I would love, um, Scouts, is if you would just each say your name into the microphone, maybe your grade level. And I know you're all from Troop 1015, and then you can lead us in the pledge. Go ahead. My name is Jake DeWin. I'm in eighth grade. Thank you. My name is Jamel Flores. I'm also in eighth grade. Right. My name is Austin Britton. I'm in ninth grade. All right. All right. Ready when you are, gentlemen. Do <clears throat> you want to ask us to rise? Audience, please rise. Please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you so much, Scouts from 1015. Very well done. And with um, that, we'll move on to our roll call. Madam Clerk, would you call the roll, please? Vice Mayor Jason. Here. Council Members Ferrer Spencer. Present. Jensen. Here. Vela. Here. Mayor Ezzy Ashcraft? Here. Five present. All right, thank you. The next item is agenda changes, and we do have a few. Madam Clerk, do you want to lead us off? Sure. Um, so in case anybody is here in the audience tonight and didn't see on the agenda, um, items 7E, um, which is the uh, public art master plan, and 7F, which is the um, radium exclusive negotiation agreement hearing, um, have both been withdrawn and will not be heard tonight. But when will they be heard, Madam Clerk? <laughs> um, we believe that uh, the radium matter will come back on the 19th and the mass public art master plan will come back on January 2nd. Early next year. Okay, thank you. All right, and so we note that change. And then um, uh, Mr. Uh, City Attorney Eben Shen. Uh, Madam Mayor, members of the council, um, I'd like to respectfully request on behalf of the staff that you consider moving the CIP item earlier in the agenda, potentially to the top of the regular agenda. Um, 
the reason for the request is that as council and staff have both received very large numbers of community communications expressing interest and finality in the CIP process, and staff has worked very hard and is anxious to implement whatever direction you choose to give us, and so um, based on that, I'm make, respectfully rec making this recommendation to you tonight. All right, and um, Councilman Jensen, if you would hold for just a minute, I might want to add to that motion because I have another suggested agenda change. Um, so um, the first item on our regular agenda is the, um, the council um, adoption of resolutions appointing our two newest members of the planning board. And I believe they're present here today. Is that correct, Madam Clerk? Yes. And so what I would like to do is for the motion to actually ask to move that um, resolution up to right after we finish agenda changes, and then I would um, like to have the, um, the motion also include the city attorney's request to have um, item 7G then move to the top of the item 7 regular agenda. Okay, is that a motion, Madam uh, Council Member? Thank you, Madam Chair. I'll make a motion to move item 7G to replace item 7A and move item 7A to the be heard the, next be heard after this item all right do i have a second? second all right all those in favor signify by stating aye. aye 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 any opposed that motion carries unanimously thank you so much for that courtesy and so with and we don't have any proclamations or special orders of the day today so madam clerk could you call that um that uh item 7a please Oh, yes. uh, 7A, 7A, as we're doing 7A right yes, after we're agenda doing it right changes. After, you're right. <laughs> um, 7A, thank you, is adoption of resolutions uh, appointing Andy Wang and Sunny Sue as members of the planning board. All right, and would we like, oh, we need to have the motion. Just, yes, yes. Uh, Councilmember Harris Spencer. So moved. I have a motion second. to, I have a motion by <laughs> Councilmember Harris Spencer, seconded by Councilmember Vela. All those in favor, um, please signify by stating aye. 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 Any opposed, any abstentions? That motion passes unanimously. So Madam Clerk, take okay. it from here, please. Come on up, commissioners. Planning board members, actually. Okay, Mr. Oh, is it, um, oh, maybe Mr. Wang isn't here. Okay, that's okay. We can do it remotely. Okay. And so just for the benefit of the audience, we had a couple of openings come up on the planning board in the middle of a term. And so um, we called for applications. We got lots of applications. The planning director and I did lots of interviews. And we chose two very talented uh, individuals, local residents. And um, Sunny Sue is one of them. And, and I hope the clerk has told you that we'd love to have you introduce yourself and say a few words to the group. So um, welcome to the microphone. And, and uh, uh, welcome, uh, Mr. Sue. Hey, um, good evening, uh, council members and, and members of the public. Um, uh, my name is Sunny Sue. Uh, I've lived in Alameda for about uh, coming on two years now, and um, and, ex oh. um, and uh, excited to serve for the planning board um, in my uh, kind of professional career. I am a land use and a CEQA attorney, so um, you know the things that the planning board do are, do are very familiar to me. Um, and uh, in other things that I'm involved in with the city, uh, I'm a part of the Alameda Chamber of Commerce and currently 
participating in their leadership program. So um, definitely excited to serve and then looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, serving um, in this important capacity. All right, so that was item um, 7A that we took a little out of order, but we just didn't want to keep our folks here um, too late into the evening. So then we move on to item four, oral communications. And Madam Clerk, I'm gonna turn it back over to you. Um, to hand out the trick-or-treat candy or whatever you're about to do. <laughs> Thank you, Madam We candy? need a different bowl, I know. But um, so we do have um, well over um, the number of speakers that would remain within the 15-minute window since this first section of oral communications is limited to 15 minutes. And so um, what we will do is we will um, draw names as required by our Sunshine Ordinance, and we will get through the first speakers and then any additional speakers, um, their speaker slips will remain in the stack for um, the next section, which is after the council conducts all of its regular business. At and, the and just for clarification, this is item four, and this is for comments, oral comments, on items that aren't on the agenda. So if you wanted to talk about the Turning Basin item or um, the AUSD lease or something, not now, <laughs> you know, wait until that happens. Um, Councilmember Harris Spencer, you had your hand up. How yes. many uh, speaker slips do you have? Um, I have 21. And so, as the as the city clerk said, we have 15 minutes at the top of the agenda. Everybody will get two minutes if your name is called. But then, at the end of the regular agenda, item nine, we go back into oral communications, and we'll get to the rest of you. So, um, all right. Uh, the first name is Ashley. No, no last name. Speaker Ashley. Um, and come on up, and when you come up to the microphone, I like to say make it yours. You, every, everyone's a different height, so just make it at about mouth level, and we can hear you. Welcome, Speaker Ashley. Can you hear me? We can. Okay. My name is Ashley. I've lived in Alameda since 2017. I'm here with Alameda families and friends for a ceasefire, and I join with others tonight in a collective call for the Alameda City Council to agendize and issue a resolution to call for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza and throughout the West Bank. I urge you to join other Bay Area cities by taking a stance for justice. I urge you to join with the majority of the people of the world who see through the deceit and the hate and instead are embracing the Palestinian people's struggle as interconnected with their own. We must take every action within our means to denounce the atrocities taking place in our name and with our tax dollars against the innocent people of Palestine. The siege of Gaza, on Gaza is part of a larger picture of increased policing and militarization worldwide. Money going to Israel's weapons, $1,115,883 from Alameda alone, could instead fund public housing for 132 households for a year or provide 388 children with free or low-cost health care. Alameda has taken steps towards building relationships with the Lijan Ohlone people through renaming Chochenyo Park and paying the Shumi land tax. Efforts that acknowledge indigenous sovereignty and move towards recentering indigenous voices are in line with the Palestinian right to return to and flourish on their land. Joining our voices in the demand for a ceasefire is truly the bare minimum of what our city can do. Let us decide as people who want to stand on the right side of history, stand with the people of Palestine, this is the moment that you, as leaders in our community, must be brave and courageous enough to take a principled stance against genocide, occupation, and apartheid. 
Okay, and thank you so much for being respectful audience members, and I, I really appreciate all the silent affirmations. Um, and the reason we don't do the cheering or whatever is that it is intimidating for some, and I don't want anyone to feel intimidated and not come forward to speak because this is a very public meeting. Who's our next um, speaker, Madam Clerk? Um, Iman E. Iman E, come on up. Hi, can everyone hear me? Yes. My name is Ima and I'm here again after last week to again urge you to call for a special meeting and add a ceasefire resolution to the agenda. Last week, my peers read you thousands of stats of children, women, and men that have been killed that are innocent in Gaza in the last 60 days. I won't reread you those stats that have now increased today, but I want to tell you about a video that haunts me every single day before I sleep of a girl of age 8 to 10. And in the video, she's being carried in, carried in the arms of a man. Her legs and her arms are moving in the video, but when she turns her face to look at the camera, it is unrecognizable. Her eyes and her mouth and her nose are literally melting off of her face in this video, and I cannot get it out of my head. I strongly urge you to use your humanity today. This is not about a political situation. There is never a justification for a child being treated like this. There's never a justification for bombing schools, refugee camps, and hospitals, and you cannot justify the murdering over 6,000 children in the name of self-defense. Follow in the footsteps of Oakland and make history today. Every single day that goes by is another day that more innocent children are killed. And Mayor, last week we talked to you, and I understand that you have sympathy for this situation. Please have the courage to stand up for this, and I promise my community will organize and mobilize to get you reelected and everybody else in power that stands for this issue today. Please use your power to do the right thing and call for a ceasefire. Every single day that goes by, innocent children are being bombed. This is about humanity. This is not about a political issue. And stand up for what's right. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker. Um, yes, sorry. Um, Amina Hakim. Amina Hakim, come on up. Good evening, everyone. It's nice to see you all again. Uh, my name is Amina Hakim, again representing Alameda Friends and Family for a Ceasefire. I wasn't planning on speaking tonight because it's been a very emotional um, few weeks. All of us have been traveling far and wide to speak at these city councils until we're blue in the face. We are sick and we are tired and we are heartbroken and we are almost, almost defeated. And I think that is the point some of you here and some of you in Congress have been hoping for. But just like with slavery and ethnic genocide of the indigenous peoples of this land, white supremacy eventually dies sooner or later. What I didn't get to say last time I was here was that my Palestinian colleague, a teacher of nearly 30 years and a resident of Alameda, has lost 30 members of her family, 30 members of her family, the youngest of them being two years old. Last night, when I went to San Leandro City Council, I met another Palestinian woman who lost 80 members of her family. 80 members of her, fa of her family. I, I just imagine a lineage, an entire people just, just gone. And I know that might seem like a number to you, but these are human lives. These are brothers. These are grandmothers. These are aunties, brothers, sisters, grandparents, friends. These, these people are also your constituents, just like the three Palestinians that were murdered in cold blood, the six-year-old child that was stabbed to death 26 times in America. 
We are unable to, show, unable to show up to work every day and do our jobs. It hurts to try to put a smile on the children's faces while we know those children are being bombed, killed, massacred, amputated, disintegrated before our very eyes. And we no longer have the middleman, media, trying to silence those voices. They are coming from the grounds. They are coming directly from those people. Thank you. Your time is up. Thank you. Our next speaker, our next speaker is? Uh, Maya Watala. Maya Watala, welcome. Hi, everyone. Hi. Um, so my name is Maya. I've uh, grown up in Alameda. I'm from here. Um, so this is my first time speaking uh, at a meeting here. Um, but I feel called to just echo what has been said in terms of the need to uh, you know, demand a ceasefire um, and further halt support, financial support, military support to occupying forces. Um, yeah, I did not prepare anything. I just want to let you know I'm devastated every day um, and trying to make an impact the way that I can. Um, and so I understand one of those things is my voice. There's a real opportunity here to you know, move the dial forward in a super symbolic way. Um, and so I'm just you know, we're here and we're safe, and, you know. So I just hope that we can utilize our health and wealth and attention um, to making the right decision. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker. Eric Sells. Welcome, Speaker Sells. Hello. Welcome. My name is uh, Eric, and I'm going to cede my time to my wife. Uh, okay, Sarah, that, that's, that's okay. fine. Yeah. And be sure you speak up close to the microphone so we can hear you. Welcome. Point of order. It's my understanding we don't allow seating of time. Um, Madam Clerk? Yeah. Our, I, uh, I, did you, um, have you put in a speaker slip? Both of us did. Both of you did? We got four minutes on the clock. Yeah. Um, two, person, two minutes a person. So um, if Mr. Sells, if you don't want to speak now, you don't have to. Um, but we do, that is true, that we don't, we don't see time, but then, okay, if okay. I could just ask, um, I would love to have everyone just listen respectfully to our speakers, please. I, I would love silent show of support, please. Fun. Some people may be intimidated and not get up to speak, that's perfect. All right, welcome. Come up a little closer to the microphone so we can see. Sure, you You can raise it up because you're right. tall. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hello, my name is Eric, and I've lived in Alameda since 2020. Come here tonight, uh, not associated with any group, but as a husband and a proud six-year veteran of the United States Air Force. And I've joined others here in a call for the Alameda City Council to issue a resolution to call for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza and throughout the West Bank. <laughs> During two deployments in the Middle East, I personally experienced the fear, dehumanization, and upheaval that war brings. And I, along with the others here, hope the city of Alameda will be a voice for peace and bring forward a resolution. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll hope your name comes up. All right. Our next speaker. Well, we, it's whoever is called from the, um, the, the bin. So our next speaker, Madam Clerk. Uh, Brooke El Amin. Speaker El Amin. Welcome. Hello. My name is Brooke El Amin. 
I've lived in Alameda, right here on Santa Clara Street, for two and a half years. My family has been so thankful to have landed here after having lived in Lebanon for 13 years, which is where my husband is originally from. Part of why we ended up in Alameda was the uncertainty and insecurity that we were experiencing living on the border of Palestine and living in Lebanon. I'm here to ask the City Council to agendize a resolution for an immediate and permanent ceasefire and pass it. We're asking you to stand with humanity and against war, against death, against destruction at a horrendous scale that is unprecedented in modern history. 16,248 Palestinians have been killed in two months as of today, according to the UN. If you include the numbers of missing people who are assumed to be buried under the rubble, there are more than 20,000 people killed in Gaza in two months. 70% of those are women and children. Over 6,200 children have been murdered. This is, for comparison, in Ukraine in two years, 500 children were murdered. And my understanding is that City Hall was lit up in blue and yellow for a month. I'm not asking you to light up the City Hall and the colors of the Palestinian flag. We're asking you for a bare minimum of saying that these innocent people do not deserve to die. It doesn't matter if they're Palestinian. It doesn't matter if their skin is brown. It doesn't matter if they are perceived or to be Muslim. It doesn't matter that they're Arab. They are humans. They deserve to live. And, and standing against that or being silent is being complicit with the dehumanization of Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker, Madam Clerk. Uh, Shakriya Hakim. Shakriya Hakim? Yes. Speaker Hakim? Shakri, maybe? Yeah, she's coming. I see, okay. Hello, my name is Shukri Hakim. I'm also here again. You, um, you may want to bring it down yet, just a little, so we can hear you better. Thank you. I was also here later time. I was happy to meet you in person. I want to ask why we have to convince you to your humanity to call for ceasefire. To call for cease, to call for stop the murdering of children. Do you favor your children more than other? And I'm working, I have two jobs. In my out of two jobs, I have only a little bit of money coming back. All the money going to kill and demonize Palestinian. All of this have to stop. I want you to adapt a resolution for permanent ceasefire. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker. Um, Garfield Kincross. Welcome, Speaker Kincross. Hello. Uh, Welcome. Mayor Ashcraft and uh, city council members. I am uh, here to uh, 
voice my opinion about what has happened in Alameda over the years, uh, culminating in this uh, drastic allowance of the uh, CIP uh, to um, move Speaker forward. King so, Cross, so this this isn't we haven't come to that item quite yet. Okay, but we will. Well, that that's what I I, I was uh, signed up to speak I'm about. Sorry, I'm sorry, we we must have. I'm so, a bit flummoxed. Uh, yeah, uh, as it was, to when and where to, uh, to uh, have my two minutes. Okay, Miss Miss Ashley here will help you um, with the speaker slip. She'll help you get the correct agenda item. Um, on it, okay. and you will um, you will be called then. Okay, and I'm sorry for the confusion. All right, and I'm going to add a little time back to the clock. <laughs> so then, the last speaker will be um, uh, Nasiman Khan. Nasiman Khan. Yeah. Welcome, Speaker Khan. Hello, everyone. May and the council uh, members. I'm here to voice my opinion in regard to Gaza issue. I would like to request that I'm a paid citizen, taxpayer paid, and a citizen of USA, and I would like to request my money not to go towards the genocide of the Palestinians. This is, you know, these people are human beings just like us. So we cannot just, you know, drop aerial bombs on them to, to come to a resolution to find Hamas or to stop the, uh, you know, the Palestinians from occupying their own place. There has to be some kind of resolution besides what we're doing right now. And I would like to have a, um, the oppression, to stop oppression against the Palestinians. And we have done so many wars. U.S. has gone to so many wars, Vietnam or Afghanistan, Ukraine right now, and Israel. We have not accomplished anything. So what does you know, I don't know why we feel that we're going to accomplish what we're doing right now. So we are just killing innocent people just to find a handful of people who are just, you know, against other, other group of people, you know, Israelis. So there has to be some other, you know, ways to do it. So I'm just praying and hoping that you guys will uh, listen to everybody who's here speaking and try to come to some resolution or let us know, give us some peace. We need peace in our society. I mean, there is no peace. For the last, it's gonna be 60 days on December 7th in a couple of days, and a lot of us has not slept, has not eaten, and we cry every day, and these innocent people are all dying. So I'm just requesting that please cease fire on the Palestinians. Thank you. And Madam Clerk, I think you might be wanting to tell us that that was the 15 minutes, or do we have another time for another speaker? Even with, even with adding back the time for the, okay, all right. So for everyone, and I know there's a lot of you out there who still want to speak on non-agenda items. So as I was saying earlier, if you look at our agenda, I know it looks a little scary, but we did remove some items. When we come to item nine, that will be the second chance for oral communication. So be sure your speaker slippery Speak, blah. Speaker slips are in if you haven't spoken yet. Um, bring them up to our um, assistant city clerk here. And um, if you can hold out, we're going to try to move through this meeting as quickly as possible so we don't keep you all out too late. So with that, we are going to move then to the consent calendar. And the consent calendar items 
a routine and will be approved by one motion unless council members remove items for full discussion. Removed items um, are heard until after the regular agenda items, but we'll see what gets pulled because we have a couple of things that are very time sensitive. We're getting to the end of the calendar year. And so um, what I need to ask then is, um, uh, well, um, so before that, I think I need to ask, and believe me, the city clerk gives me a cheat sheet, so I do this right. Um, first, I need to ask if there's any um, items that the city council wants to pull from the consent calendar. Then I'll come back to you, Councilmember Jensen, for a motion. Okay, uh, Councilmember Hera Spencer. Uh, thank you, Mayor. I'd like to pull 5N as a Nancy. I'd also like to make comments on 5I and 5J. And I want to thank staff. Um, we have the opportunity as council members to submit questions in advance. And staff responded uh, and made supplemental comments. If you look at some of these agenda items, such as the 5I and J, but there's a few other ones uh, where they may, it says correspondence from city manager. Um, and so I, I um, appreciated the response from staff. And so I will not be pulling those items, just the 5N then. Thank you. OK. So. Um, just five N as in Nancy, correct? Okay, any other pulls from the council? Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. and so then I, um, then um, any, does council have any questions on the remaining items? Seeing no hands, do we have public speakers on the consent calendar? Uh, we do, we have one in person and one remote. Um, in person is John Brennan. All right, um, welcome Speaker Brennan. <coughs> Thank you, council members. I'm here to speak and thank you for supporting the 5J agenda item in the, uh, in the calendar uh, to support the warming shelter at Christ Church. Uh, Elisa Rosera and I are the co-directors of the center. And uh, last year we provided uh, support for over 60 individuals, uh, almost 20 of whom got permanent transitional supportive, well, actually not permanent, but transitional housing um, at uh, Dignity Village and, and a few other places. So thank you, Amy Wooldridge. Thank you, Marcy Johnson, for supporting this and those teams. Um, this year, we have, a new we have a new operating partner, Episcopal Community Services, that we are really excited about. As you know, last year, we, did a, we had a day uh, center, uh, a day support center that was all volunteer. This year, we're going to use a different strategy in partnership with the Village of Love to have a day program there using bus passes that uh, we're able to provide to our guests. So again, thank you very much. This is an essential part of how we are going to support our unhoused neighbors. Uh, one other uh, thing I, I would like to say, I know there's another agenda item, uh, um, 7G, about housing. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, um, so this I'm is not, just the consent calendar, okay. Yeah, yeah. so, so um, and that has an intersection with the shelter. Um, so uh, we, we at, at, at the warming shelter want to support any measures that will help ensure that we don't cause more homelessness and create a greater need for the shelter. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any other um, speakers? Now we have remote speakers, and um, just so the remote speakers are aware, this is for just items on the consent calendar, so I just want to make sure they know. And the first one is um, Liz Varela. Welcome, Speaker Varela. Hi, this is Liz Varela. I'm the Executive Director of Building Futures, and I just wanted to thank the City um, Council and the City staff 
in supporting 5A, which is uh, funding to provide uh, warming shelter hotel vouchers for the very most vulnerable on our streets this winter. Um, it really shows what a compassionate city you are to be able to um, protect these uh, with these folks over the winter. And uh, we just wanted to say thank you. Thank you, and we thank you for all you do. Um, our next speaker. Uh, Chris Calandrillo. Welcome, speaker, maybe in person? No, no, no Calandrillo, oh, no. remote. Oh, remote, okay, yeah. sorry. Welcome, speaker Calandrillo. Um, am I, can you hear me? Yes, I, can, I yes, see we the time can. moving. Yep. Thank you. Um, my name is Chris Calandrillo. I'm the Chief Program Officer for Episcopal Community Services. And we've proposed to, to operate the, the winter warming shelter in collaboration with Christ Episcopal Church. We'll also be partnering with St. Joseph's Church and Twin Towers Methodist Church to um, offer additional sites this year. And we really appreciate your consideration of this, uh, of this program and of this ongoing, ongoing um, effort. So thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker. That was our last speaker. Okay, and I would just like to make a, a um, share a comment from Reverend Stephen McHale, who is the um, the minister at Christ Episcopal Church. He wasn't able to attend tonight, and some of what he told me in a text message um, uh, has been said already. But I want um, the council and the community to know that so this wonderful um, program that is going to run from December fifteenth of this year until March 14th of next year in like the coldest and rainiest um, time of the year um, is supported by some funds that we put in um, and this collaboration of other churches in the community and Christ Episcopal Church will be raising approximately 60000 that's $60,000 to also support the um, shelter. They're organizing the meals and showers. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful program. So thank you so much. So does that complete um, public comment on the consent calendar? So we'll close public comment on the consent calendar. Um, we will go to Councilmember Jensen to make a motion to um, approve the balance of the consent calendar. Um, and do I have a... Um, With the um, chair's support, I would also like to make a comment about the item. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Um, I also spent, I have spent time at Christ Episcopal at the warming shelter. I um, have close personal experience with homelessness and I've found the shelter to be a tremendous resource for the community. I'm very excited to know that, that um, there'll be new partners and new different partners as well in the community as well as a new community support partner. And it's really, really very exciting to know that the, so many of the participants have been able to use the resources and to gain the transitional housing that we offer in Alameda as well at Dignity Village. So this is a tremendous program. Thank you, John, for coming in, John Brennan, and um, I wholeheartedly support the consent calendar and especially item 5J, which is the recommendation to authorize the city manager to ex execute an agreement with Christ Episcopal Church for the winter warming shelter. Thank you. And did I see um, Councilmember Della's hand go up for a second? Okay. So we've had a motion. It's been seconded. All those in favor of approving balance of the consent calendar signify by stating aye. 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 Any opposed? Any abstentions? That passes unanimously. Um, uh, staff, let me just ask, do you want us to take a vote to hear the remaining consent calendar item, which is item J, or just... 
Five. 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 that item is not time sensitive, so um, we perfect. could hear it at the council's pleasure. We can hear it. Well, and then it just moves to the end of the regular uh, agenda. Okay, that's right. perfect. Thank you for that. Okay, great work, council. So now we move on to the um, continued agenda items. So these were items that we <coughs> ran out of time to hear at the last meeting or maybe even a meeting before that. So they get to be heard before the regular agenda. Uh, item and so Madam Clerk will you introduce that first item and then just explain the intricacies of it perfect um, introduction of six uh, A's introduction ordinance authorizing the transfer of 0.65 acres to the Alameda Unified School District the conveyance of an easement to the Alameda Unified School District for parking and access per purposes the acceptance of an easement from AOSD for parking and access purposes and the city manager to execute all necessary documents in connection therewith to facilitate the renovation and rebuild of Wood Middle School, these actions are categorically exempt from further environmental review under the California Environmental Quality Act guidelines, section 15305, minor alterations in land use limitations. So this item was, the discussion was opened at the last meeting, um, public speakers were called and the council discussion had already started. Um, so there will be no additional public comment which was noted on the um, agenda. And then the council uh, speaking times from last time have been carried forward and um, that that's how the discussion goes when you stop mid-item. Mid <laughs> Thank you, and I believe our assistant city manager, Amy Wildridge, is the point person on this one. Is that correct? Yes, All right. that's correct. Welcome, Ms. Wildridge. Oh, do we have a presentation? Yeah. We, we did it last time. Oh, so, I'm sorry, you're yeah. right. We already did the presentation, yeah. so I'm, I, I believe we'd already done the... So do you want to just um, give us a summary of what it is you're asking the council to do? Yes, thank you. So um, uh, we have the, the two easements. The, we have an easement and a transfer of property that we're requesting from city council um, that will, um, that's for the Wood Middle School uh, construction project for Alameda Unified School District, uh, which is adjacent to Riddler Park owned by city of Alameda. And, um, the public benefit in doing these transfers and e one transfer and an easement is to then provide uh, 70 spaces of public parking for the public for Riddler Park, which also reduces impacts on the local neighborhood. Thank you. And um, Mr. City Attorney, would you remind us how many votes we need to approve this item and why? Yes, uh, Madam Mayor, members of the council, this involves a transfer of real property and therefore it requires four affirmative votes from the council. All right. Okay, so, and Madam Clerk, well, no, we didn't, I think we, we asked the maker and seconder of the motion to withdraw. Yeah. So what you're looking at, Vice Mayor, is that um, the, the, city, <laughs> the city clerk uh, keeps uh, uh, meticulous records so she knows how much time we had left on our clocks. Okay, so we, um, we now, in time travel, we move from last meeting to this meeting and I mean, essentially, we've had the, the item has been presented, and I'm looking for a motion, a second. We'll have discussion. We'll vote. Um, I would definitely happily move approval. Parks and schools make Alameda into a supportive, healthy, livable community. Having been on the school board and on the city council now, I understand how closely our organizations must work together, and I'm personally, and I hope this organization is also supportive of um, the voters choice to pass a bond issue to improve Wood Middle School and this easement is necessary for that construction and that that uh, project so I will definitely and happily move to approve it. Thank you. All right. And do I have a second? 
I'm going to second, I, since I didn't get to make comments at the last meeting, I, I do just want to say, and I appreciate the work of our staff working with the school district staff. I know that this is a, a very complex project in terms of how they are timing a lot of the different construction to kind of work collectively and collaboratively to make sure that we aren't negatively impacting any of our extracurricular programming and uh, making sure that there's access to fields and facilities and things like that. So. Um, with great appreciation uh, to staff for, for all of the work and the continued work that's going to happen even after this uh, in making sure that we can continue to coordinate. Um, I, I'll be supporting this. Thank you. And I, I think we thank both our um, wonderful city staff and also the AUSD staff. And I'm really pleased that uh, with the collaboration that has been shown by both sides. Any um, comments, discussion? Council, Councilmember Harris Spencer. Thank you, Mayor. Um, could someone share what's going to happen with the Little League fields? Sure, absolutely. So there are two little league fields um, that are on the AUSD property. Uh, AUSD is working closely with Little League and our Recreation Parks Director Justin Long is also working with them um, and in fact both are meeting with Little League representatives tomorrow. Um, one field will be gone of the two as well as a snack bar will be demolished later in 2024-25 um, as part of the uh, first phase of part of the rebuild of uh, Wood Middle. The second field would not be demolished until closer to 2028, and there would be a new field built on, as part of the sports campus that they are planning to build next to Wood Middle on Old Lum Elementary Campus. May I continue? You may. So if I heard correctly, there's two currently, and there's going to be one built? One new one built, and there will be discussion as part of the design of the sports um, complex there of a potential for a second field. And the school district and recreation parks are both looking for and have been in discussion and are meeting again with Little League tomorrow about what other fields could be made available um, to, to keep their programming whole. So I appreciate that and uh, that's always, we never have enough fields. So hopefully you all can come up with something to at least have the same number of fields if not more uh, Little League fields, because I'm sure you know, there's, all, there, there's always high demand. So I appreciate um, uh, discussing that. I also wanted to share that my concern with this, giving the school district this easement, is that um, I wanted to ensure that the parking would be available to the public uh, and not just uh, for school use or limited in any way in the future. Uh, such that, and we've seen this, uh, a lot of our schools do not, including this one, do not have sufficient parking. And then sometimes the uh, school district will take some of the parking on the street and dedicate it for, like from eight to five just for school use. And um, I think it's very important that the city public have access to these few parking spaces that will be next to you know the park. Um, and I know that the documents were, uh, that was, uh, tightened up, that language was tightened up to uh, ensure that as we move forward, uh, these spaces will always be for the public at large. And I wanted to get confirmation from staff uh, as we <coughs> essentially uh, confirming that uh, during this uh, meeting. Okay. I, I believe I heard you say that, but do you want to yes, say I'm it again? Yes, I'm more than happy to confirm um, uh, that, yes, there will be reciprocal public access, so the parking lot will be fully accessible to the public at all, at all times, and the district has agreed to that. Thank you very much. Okay, any further comments? 
All right, we've had a motion by Councilmember Jensen, seconded by Councilmember Vela. All those in favor signify by stating aye. 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 Any opposed? Any abstentions? That motion passes unanimously. Thank you, everyone. Okay, let's move on to the next item. 6B's introduction of ordinance authorizing the city manager to execute a lease with the Alameda Transportation Management Association for a single office space in City Hall West at Alameda Point for a five-year lease term with base rent of $1 per year. A final environmental impact report for the Alameda Point project was certified on February 4, 2014 <coughs> in compliance with the California Environmental <coughs> Quality Act. Um, and that's it. Good evening. Welcome. Good evening, Welcome. Mayor. Mr. Thomas, why don't you introduce Council. yourself? Andrew Thomas, um, City of Alameda. Staff, Mr. Um, Thomas, could you raise that microphone up so we can hear I, I you? I think your clerk pretty much explained it. Short-term lease, um, five years. It's a single office space in City Hall West for the Alameda Transportation Management Association. Um, I'm available to answer any questions. We're recommending approval. Thank you, um, Mr. Shen. You have that look about you. Did you want to say something? I just want to uh, remind the council that this item will also require four votes, be four votes. because it is a lease. Yes of city property. All right, excellent. And goodbye, Scouts. Thank you so much for visiting us. Good to see you. Um, okay, so any clarifying questions before we go to public comment? Any public comment, Madam Clerk? There is none. All right, we'll close public comment on item 6B. Motion to approve. So moved. It's been moved by Councilmember Vela, seconded by Vice Mayor Daysog. All those in favor, please signify by stating aye. 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 Any opposed, any abstentions? <coughs> that motion passes unanimously. Okay, great pace, people. Um, and uh, would you introduce our next item, please, Madam Clerk? 60 is the recommendation to authorize the city manager to execute a two-year agreement with Ramming Associates in an amount not to exceed 225,000, including contingencies to update the Climate Action and Resiliency Plan in accordance with the California Environmental Quality Act. These actions are statutory exempt from further environmental review, pursuant to guideline section 15262, feasibility and planning studies. All right, um, so I'm looking in the audience and I see Danielle Miller. And uh, do you wanna introduce her, Madam? Uh, sure, this was a consent item and so it was pulled. And so oh, yeah. Danielle, um, our sustainability manager is here to answer any questions, but I think we didn't. We don't have a presentation. We're happy All to right. answer any questions. Absolutely, yeah. And I, um, but I'm happy to introduce to the public our remarkable resiliency and, wait, I always. Uh, sustainability sus and resiliency. Sustainability manager. and resiliency manager who is single-handedly almost protecting us from sea level rise and climate change, but working with literally 30 other agencies in the area. We are so lucky to have her. So um, any um, clarifying questions on this item? I don't even remember who pulled it. Councilmember Harris Spencer. Thank you, Mayor. Um, thank you, Ms. Mueller. Mm -hmm. um, I, my question, I pulled it because this allocates 220, up to 225000 and I want to confirm that is from the general fund. Correct. That was allocated by council during the budget process this year. And then my uh, question had been in the past, how much money total have we spent on uh, this uh, plan? And there's correspondence from city manager attached to this item uh, supplementing it. But I do have a question because when I look at this chart, it has uh, 606,000, and I think that is the a running total? I'm actually not sure on this table. The chart that I believe you're looking at was the amounts of the unsuccessful proposals for the CARP update. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. So and, there was and four. And Ms. Mueller, just to bring the audience along, and me, um, we're talking about exhibit, are we talking about exhibit one, the agreement? No, the, which chart? 
Oh, the, in the staff report? Under the correspondence from the city manager. Correspond okay, sorry. That's under 6C. And there's um, a chart of yeah. all of the proposals that were received oh, yes, and right, their budget right, amounts, right. and then they were totaled, which I don't think is relevant. I mean, it's not relevant. No, they, I'm sorry, they, they were not totaled. There was a, a, a proposal, proposal for $606,000. All oh. oh, right. Didn't, and didn't and take that. It was not selected. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And the others were pretty similar. The others were very close to 200000 Go ahead. Okay. Councilor, and this one is uh, not to exceed 225, but the past monies that have been <coughs> spent is that 378, 437. Is it plus the 75? Correct. 378 plus 75 uh, plus 30 totals about 483. Is what we've spent to date. And is that <coughs> also general fund monies? Um, they, there was, I believe, this is before my time, I believe there was a grant that offset some of the general fund monies <coughs> at that time. Yeah, and I, I wasn't here as well, so I'm not sure exactly what funds were used for those past efforts. All right, so at some point I would like clarification of how much general fund monies has been spent on this to date. Um, but that does complete my questions. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Did you want to make a motion? Oh, I'm sorry, did, Vice Mayor. Mayor Vice I did Mayor, just did receive an update yes. that it was a grant. <coughs> so the, grant. the previous CARP was funded through a grant. The uh, $483,000 was, so no general fund monies was spent before. It was very, it was limited with a, just a match for some of it, but the, and we can get you the number. I'm happy to follow up, but the majority of that, ex, the cost of the original CARP was through um, a grant. Thank you. Um, Vice Mayor Daisek, I saw your hand go up. Uh, yeah, thank you. It's more of a comment, but maybe you can react to the comment. Um, you know, what I found exciting about the first CARP was that in three areas, I believe, um, there were uh, uh, possible responses to sea level rise was um, kind of like inviting the um, 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 sea level rise to occur, <coughs> kind of a, instead of a hardscape response, a soft response, I think a, possibly a tidal marsh in the future, in the far into the future, a tidal marsh along um, Crown Memorial Beach along shoreline and also around Crab Cove, um, uh, recognizing that inundation will occur but not necessarily fighting it. And obviously we know Deepave Park. Um, I see that in the staff report there's kind of discussion about that. Um, so it's, it, can you give us a sneak peek as to you know anything new with regard to that approach? Yeah, happy to. And we'll be coming back to council in the new year with an extended update on our approach to sea level rise. But the short answer is that we've been working over the past two plus years with about 30 regional agencies on the Oakland and Alameda shoreline to collaborate on um, adapting to sea level rise. We've also, we've received um, almost $4 million in grant funding. We've hired consultant a consultant team, a really amazing consultant team, including some local experts. Um, and we've also funded community partners in both Oakland and Alameda through these uh, grants. And um, we are initiating three projects, a long-term shoreline adaptation plan for all of Alameda and Oakland shoreline, um, a Posey-Webster tubes adaptation project on both the Alameda and Oakland side, and a Bay Farm Island project. Um, and we're seeking additional grant funding for construction of those projects in the near term. And one of our... Uh, one of the, we have, so the, we have a working group, they meet quarterly, um, and one of the tenets of the working group is to really find ways to, to live with water, to um, adapt, to welcome the water in, to restore habitat, restore water quality, um, and to not, like you said, to not fight it. 
but to, to envision a, a future for our, our shoreline, that's something that we all really enjoy being part of. Thank you. Thank you for that. And Madam Clerk, I forgot to ask, do we have public comment on this? We do. Okay, so clarifying questions, Council, and then we'll, okay. All right, let's hear from, I thank you so much, Ms. Miller. Don't go away, because it sounds like um, we might have, oh no, it's public comment. Yes, you may sit, please. <laughs> All right, Madam Ruth Clerk. Ruth Abbey. Ah, yes, welcome, Speaker Abbey. Uh, good evening, uh, Madam Mayor, members of the City Council. I'm Ruth Abbey from uh, Community Action for Sustainable Alameda. We uh, support the hiring of Ramian Associates for the five-year update for the Climate Action and Resiliency Plan. It's really important that CARP um, anticipated an every five-year update of the plan in order to fine-tune the actions and uh, projections. Uh, the work will also include an emissions inventory, which has been was originally conducted in 2017. So a lot has happened since 2017, and it's really important for us to understand how we're doing. And um, lastly, I believe this scope of work will include a more detailed action plan that both the city and the community-based organizations can support in um, moving forward to achieve our emissions reduction goals and resiliency plans. So thank you so much. Thank you. Our next speaker. And that was our only speaker. Okay, so with that, we will close public comment on item 6C and we'll come back to the, um, uh, the council for comments the motion. Thank you. I have a Council Member uh, Spencer, please. The prior plan, I believe that is where the gas powered leaf blowers ban is part of that. Correct. And we continue to hear complaints. In fact, I think I received an email today uh, that it's not really being enforced. Um, is the part of the who covers the enforcement of the plan? The code enforcement officers in planning, building, and transportation. So will this, when, when it's revisited, will it have anything to help us enforce the first plan? Yep. Ms. Madam City Manager? Great, yeah. Code enforcement has a plan for enforcing and we are actively doing that and we'll continue to do that. Obviously, if there are, um, you know, if there's more we can do, we'll look at that, but we are actively enforcing that ban and have a complaint system online. We have code enforcement officers who respond to those. Um, so we are pretty proactive. We'll review the correspondence we got today and see if there's some suggestions on how we might improve. We're happy to look at that, but that, that's not the focus of, of this plan. All right, so, but it sounds like it's, uh, there's an online procedure for people to report the Abs enforcement of the prior plan. Absolutely. Thank you, I appreciate that. Thank you, and I just wanted to comment that um, last week I spent um, two and a half days down in Carlsbad near San Diego because I'm on the board of directors of League of California Cities, and, and we were meeting, and one of the things we were doing was establishing our um, priorities for 2024, and so we're, I think we're like a 65-person board. My council colleague, Malia Vela, is one of those. We all have different areas we represent, but of the um, four priority areas that we voted on, um, one of them was strengthen climate change resiliency and disaster preparedness. And I'll just read quickly the, the um, description is, the threat of climate change is no less during tough economic times. The state needs to accelerate its efforts to prepare, reduce, and adapt to the ever-changing risks posed by climate change, especially in vulnerable, under-resourced communities. 
These risks include wildfires, flooding, drought, and other extreme weather events. Cal Cities will pursue funding strategies, including potentially a bond that provides cities with the necessary resources to improve community and infrastructure resiliency. Cal Cities will also seek to advance a partnership with state and federal agencies to strengthen essential infrastructure, including modernizing the state's water supply and energy grid. So we will continue looking to all those, uh, your group, I know, will all those funding sources. But what I found um, gratifying, but also somewhat alarming, is that looking around the state, there are so many communities, and I think, Ms. Mueller, you probably know this just from staying up to date on these things. There are so many communities that aren't nearly as prepared as, as we are and have a lot of catch-up to do, and it's especially um, concerning for some of the smaller agriculture, farming communities that just don't have the resources and are very vulnerable. So um, I really commend you and, and all of the colleagues you're working with and city staff and staff from other agencies for working together in this important endeavor. So thank you. Thank you. So council, we need to approve this agreement. Do I have a motion? So moved. It's been moved by Second. the vice mayor, seconded by council member Vela. All those in favor, please signify by stating aye. 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 Any opposed? Any abstentions? That measure passes unanimously. Thank you. All right, and so now, and it's not yet 8 o'clock. I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, if we move on to the regular agenda. So, Madam Clerk, would you introduce our... Oh, and yes, introduce the item that we moved up to the... 7G, top. yes. All right. Introduction of ordinance amending Article 15 of the Alameda Municipal Code, amending and enhancing the Rent Controls Program Capital Improvement Plan, uh, terminating the current moratorium on CIPs, applications and for properties that have 25 or more rental units, which is option A, and making other necessity updates or introduction of an alternate ordinance amending Article 15 of the Municipal Code terminating the CIP program and terminating the current moratorium on CIP applications for properties that have 25 or more rental units, which is option B, and making other necessary updates. And then um, adoption of resolution amending resolution 15138 that established the existing capital improvement plan policy for rental units in the city of Alameda and authorizing the creation of a temporary relocation tenant assistant program to provide emergency temporary assistant for tenants facing displacement and authorize the program administrators to adopt regulations to implement the program and adoption of resolution amending the fiscal year 23-24 general fund budget to appropriate 100,000 from the general fund residual fund balance for the temporary relocation tenant assistance program. These actions are exempt from environmental review because they are not projects as defined under the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA guidelines section 15378B2, or because of no significant environmental impact, CEQA section 15061. Thank you, Madam Clerk. And um, I'm going to ask staff, we've already heard this, um, this item. This is kind of a deja vu moment. Um, we've heard it. The council voted on it. But then at the last meeting, um, there was a motion to bring it back to us. So I don't feel the need for another staff report presentation. Um, could we perhaps um, find out um, the clarifying questions that um, council may have and then go to public comment and then come back for deliberation? So council members, and I'm, I'm looking at the three who pulled the item or who, who made the motion to bring this back. I, my question actually isn't clarifying so much as I think what was included in the report, I will just some reiteration with regard to the, um, the presentation. I, I don't know if you have the slide, but if you do, you can show the breakdown of the, uh, the units. So the breakdown of the units, you mean the tiers? Right. And, and is that the? Thank you. Yes. 
Okay. Uh, okay. Yep. Oh, you want to introduce right yourself <laughs> and then. Sure uh, thing. Uh, good evening, uh, Mayor and Council. My name is Ryan Helfer, and I'm a manager with the rent program. And I believe uh, this is the slide you uh, had in question. Exactly. No, this, and I actually don't have any questions. I appreciate that um, the number of properties, this is really shows the, the extent of the rent control program, I think, and, and I agree that there um, are, thank you, Mr. Chapin, that we're doing a, um, a, a great job of regulating these properties. I understand that you've, the staff has done a lot of work with regard to the moratorium since the, um, the, CIP was introduced for the large property, the 25 plus unit property. What, 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 how many units are there at South Shore that? Uh, it was 451 units. Right. Would you say, um, is South Shore the largest of our multi-unit or one of the largest? Yes, I believe it is the largest of our multi-unit properties. Thank you. And so um, I, don't have any actual clarifying questions. I wanted to just point this out. I want to point out the, the degree and the number of units that we have also to um, stress that the CIP program is not often used. The, this whole, as people will recall, this whole issue came up because of the one of our very largest um, property owners decided to utilize the CIP program to pass through and what, uh, this is, an, I guess, another clarifying question. They were, at that time, the pass-through for that large unit or any unit was how much of the amount? Well, at that time, there was no cap right. on the pass-through. Uh, and so in right. some cases, some tenants were going to be paying, in addition to the pass-through with an AGA rent increase and a bank rent increase, 80% or higher. Uh, so what, what's been, the moratorium and what's being proposed would cap would include a cap. Correct? It would cap, and and then of course, a property the size of South Shore would not be eligible for the CIP program. Exactly, and the um, the the graduated part will be will allow for um, caps up from fifty percent up to a hundred percent. Is that correct? Depending yep. on the size of the property. Depending on the property tiers we have presented with this right. slide. And um, it, in the discussion that we had previously, and, and I did, uh, as the mayor has pointed out, I did vote to support um, a, an option that wasn't the staff recommendation, but um, there was discussion about how easy or how, how property owners should set aside money to, um, to do their property improvements. And that may or may not be true, but I think that by having this robust rent control program to protect tenants, what we do is limit the amount that property owners can set aside because we don't allow for rents to be raised. So um, I appreciate the work that went into the original proposal. I asked for it to come back so that I could could re-vote and um, change my vote and vote for the proposal that staff made originally. Thank you. So this is actually clarifying questions at this point. Um, so um, any other clarifying questions? Uh, Councilmember Harris Spencer. Thank you. Um, in regards to when there's no CIP on, um, for instance, right on here, no CIP, then it's fair return. Is there a cap on the fair return that can be passed through? I would say the answer is no in most cases. Um, and are there any exceptions for, I know in, in the option A that staff proposed, there were like hard, hardship exemption uh, as well as caps. Uh, of the amount that could be passed through 
on uh, a fair return of whatever formula that is. You said there's no cap. Is there any exemption for hardship? Any, uh, perhaps you understood the question. I didn't quite, but um, City Attorney Shen? I, I do. I, I understand the council member's question to be, are there any exemptions like the hardship ex exemption that's proposed under option A? Uh, and for a fair return, am I, uh, the answer is no. Um, and I see that we're joined by um, Assistant City Attorney Michael Rausch. Um, Mr. Rausch, did you want to add anything to that response? And just unmute if you do. There you go. Mayor and members of council, no, I was going to just uh, <laughs> going to stay with uh, what Mr. Shen said, so uh, I have nothing further to add on that. Thank you. All right. Um, so, but just help me understand the no exemptions to fair return, and that's referring to. I'm happy to elaborate. So, for example, under option A, mm -hmm. um, what the staff proposal provides is that if a tenant is low income that tenant can seek an exemption from the CIP pass-through. Right. Um, if a fair return petition is filed, um, because that is governed by the United States Constitution and not governed by local law, there are no, you know, uh, these types of exemptions are not there simply because we do not regulate or legislate in the fair return area. All right, thank you for that. Okay, Councilmember Harris-Spencer, oh, That continue? completes my questions. I appreciate oh. your responses. Okay. Um, and then just for, um, just for clarification, when it is said that um, a council member chose not to follow a staff's recommendations, staff actually presented two possible ordinances to the council, correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. <laughs> and Madam Mayor, the same two ordinances are before you tonight. Right, okay. All right. Um, Okay, we have no um, further clarifying questions at this time, so we'll go to our public um, speakers. And Madam Clerk, how many do we have? Um, we have so far only eight, but um, more, might more, more might trickle in. Um, we have four in-person and four remote, so I think we'll just get through the in-person first and then go and, to the And what does that mean in terms of people's oh, time? So because we have that number of speakers, uh, it will, everybody's time will be limited to two minutes. All right, so you go ahead and call the first speaker, if you would, please. Uh, Garfield Kingcross. Welcome back, Mr. Kingcross. Thank you, Mayor and uh, City Council members, uh, staff from legal. Uh, my name is Garfield Kingcross. Uh, I am a renter in the city of Alameda. I've been here about 27 years, and uh, I have uh, been a supporter of rent control when people didn't want to use the term rent control. I introduced rent control as the uh, proper nomenclature. And soon it was established as that in meaning, rent control. Uh, what has happened to me is that uh, I lost my rental and ended up in a room with no personal toilet. I had to rent a storage unit I've been in for seven years. I have to share a bathroom. And it was because of uh, real estate speculation and uh, other uh, 
types of property uh, movement that put me in this position. Uh, this CIP is basically a gift to the landlords of people who don't support renters. Uh, rights for uh, uh, proper uh, control of skyrocketing rentals in Alameda. I am an adamant opponent to uh, the CIP. Um, I hope that it doesn't happen. I still want to see the city council vote to abolish it. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker. Um, I'll call it next to you. Sorry, I'll get on the game here. Eric Kozak, Stacy Rodriguez, and Karen Miller with Eric up first. Okay. Welcome, Speaker Kozak. <clears throat> I've addressed the uh, rent program and council and my thoughts regarding the CIP policy at nearly every meeting held the last 14 months. Those concerns are well documented, so I won't rehash them, but with Councilperson uh, Jensen's reversal of uh, her vote, raises many concerns for me, and I'll address my primary concern here. Uh, in your pithy explanation uh, last week about your reversal, you stated that it was done in the spirit of equity, but I'm curious about equity for who and for what. Uh, in these various meetings, I've only heard one citizen publicly speak out in support of the CIP policy. Uh, and as the history of the CIP data shows, nearly no small landlords have utilized this policy. Meanwhile, there's uh, over 109 letters, a petition of hundreds of signatures, and dozens of speakers against it. As far as I can see, the only significant benefactor of the CIP policy has potentially been South Shore with their $24 million application, which by proxy would benefit Blackstone, whose practices are widely regarded as one of the key factors in making the modern housing market inequitable for nearly everyone. I can't think of a corporate entity that epitomizes the antithesis of equity more than someone like Blackstone. So really what I'd like to ensure is that this reversal isn't being done uh, in the corporate interest of predatory landlords like Blackstone or even down, and that's, that could be a 10-unit uh, property. So you know that, that's what I'm really worried about here is that we're backtracking from where we were uh, a few weeks ago and many of my fellow citizens were unaware of this. It's the holidays, we're not keeping up on this stuff. So obviously there's gonna be less support, less hoorah. So I just wanna ensure that it's not corporate interest that's reversing this. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker? Uh, Stacy Rodriguez, then Karen Miller, then Zach Bowling with Stacy. Right. Welcome, Speaker Rodriguez. Hello. Um, I am a member of the South Shore Tenants Association. I have been a renter in Alameda for over 30 years. I had been, quote unquote, legally uh, displaced from rental homes by owners that wanted to take their houses back to do um, put their family in or make renovations. So I chose South Shore intentionally because I felt protected with a 97-page lease that had laws in place that ensured that I would not be vulnerable, pushed out, or put in a position where I might get hit with a $300 increase, et cetera, et cetera. You've heard me review this before. Um, I speak for myself and um, not just the South Shore tenants, but Alamedans, our community, 
or vulnerable people, and even people that aren't vulnerable. It's not fair to have continual increases put upon us so that others can continue to pad their pockets. Our rent should go to improvements in keeping properties in shape. That is a reasonable expectation. So just like the previous times I've spoken before you and the rent program staff, we continue to call for elimination of the CIP program. For over 14 months, this has been hanging over our heads. I spent a blessed week of relief after the October 25th council meeting, believing we had a resolution with the 3-2 vote in favor of eliminating the CIP for five or more units. And now we're backpedaling. Bamboozled is one of the words one of my um, co-tenants used. I don't know if I like that in my vocabulary, but it does not feel good. And unless we hold with the previous vote, the next best option is no CIP. Have you read The Sun? Even was quoted as saying, what a great rent ordinance program we have. And I think that we really need to stick to Thank that. Thank you so much. Our next speaker, uh, Speaker Miller. Good evening, Council. My name is Karen Miller, and I've been involved with the Alameda Rentals for over 20 years and served on the Rent Advisory Committee for 13 years, most of that time as chair. I am concerned that you did not keep the second tier of the 15, 5 to 15 units category recommended by staff. There are many Victorians that were converted to units that are in this category. Insurance standards are getting tougher and will no longer insure a property that has knob and tube or galvanized pipes as part of the plumbing system. This applies to both new policies and existing ones. Many of the older buildings both have, have both these conditions. Changing out these systems is extremely expensive and I can imagine that a mom and pop owner will not have the means to do this and will sell to an outside investor. In my experience chairing the rack, I found that the out of tanners and the large corporations do not care about this tenants as this is just a business for them. On the other hand, the smaller housing providers know their tenants personally and have a relationship with them. One of mine makes me fudge every Christmas. Mention has been made that owners can just refinance their improvements. Many of these smaller housing providers are on fixed incomes and do not qualify for financing. Having equity does not necessarily translate into having access to any funds. There are some of you that have questioned how the improvements benefit the tenants. I would argue that a new concrete foundation would most likely protect, protect a tenant's life and belongings when a major earthquake hits on the Hayward Fault as it would be much more effective than a brick foundation preventing the building sliding off its foundation or collapse as it occurred during Loma Prieta. If you truly are interested in keeping the local mom and pops here in Alameda and keeping out the outside investors, I would hope you would consider adding the second tier of properties to the current CIP to make it possible for smaller landlords to remain in Alameda. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Mr. Bowling. Yes. Speaker Bowling, come on up. evening mayor and council um so back in 2019 after measure k and the resounding defeat of measure k we were here talking about rent stabilization efforts that we did as a city and at the time i spoke when we were still discussing where we were going to set those rent stabilization limits <coughs> at that i wasn't necessarily at the time opposed to cip but i expected that we were actually going to set our stabilization limits lower um, and that didn't happen but now we're fast forward and i was expecting staff to come back and it took all the way till now on revisement to the CIP program that now um, seeing how it's actually being used given the lack of use of it I'm 
completely not in favor of the CIP. We have a fair right of return process. If people want to use that, they can use that process. Um, outside of that, though, I don't see a need. This doesn't seem necessary. I would have spoke at last meeting. I didn't have an opportunity, but surprise, I get an opportunity this time. So um, I just want to speak out against the way that is currently formulated against the CIP program, and I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker. Um, we'll go to remote speakers now, and the first speaker is Kimberly Tida. Welcome, Speaker Tida. Welcome. Good evening. Um, I request that the council vote to eliminate CIP. The proposed CIP plan will make housing more expensive for already cost-burdened tenants, undermining the stabilizing impact of Alameda's rent control laws. Based on the conversation this far, I'm concerned that the intention tonight is to apply CIP to all properties other than the largest property sizes. I don't think it's reasonable to ask tenants living in any property size to pay most or all of the cost of their landlord's capital improvements. Tenants shouldn't be penalized based on the size of the property we live in. It's also problematic that there are no limits on how many CIP pass-throughs may be applied to a tenancy. Landlords may place this financial burden on a tenant as often as every other year. Discussion has been largely focused on what landlords' needs are or are not. Basing need on property size is a very rough metric and it involves certain assumptions which may not be accurate. Not all small landlords are in the same financial situation. Why not base a decision for CIP funding on the landlord demonstrating the need for the funding rather than assuming all small property landlords are struggling mom and pops at imminent risk of losing their properties. Finally, voting to eliminate CIPs for only the largest properties is not a vote to protect tenants. It's just voting not to help out large corporations. That's a pretty easy, non-controversial position to take. Actually, protecting tenants involves much more than that. Ideally, this would be eliminating CIP entirely. However, should council decide to apply CIP to some or all properties, I ask that you craft a policy that is fair to tenants in form of a more reasonable cost split limiting the number of capital improvements a landlord can apply per tenancy and applying a lower cumulative cap. Please include these factors in your discussion of the proposed policy this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker. Uh, Laura Woodard. Welcome, Speaker Woodard. Hi, thank you. Um, can you hear me okay? We can hear you. Hi. Okay. Hi. I strongly oppose continuing any CIP policy in our extremely rent-inflated city. I'm one of the tenants in a two to four unit property who would be impacted by a 100% capital improvement uh, pass-through. I wanna invite any landlord who says they can't afford the cost of upkeep of their rental properties to sell their properties and get out of the housing business. Certainly they will do fine in this real estate market. CIP is an unpopular policy that everyone I've spoken to finds shockingly unfair and the 109 letters in, cor in correspondence uh, reflect this. Um, the proposal to allow some tenants to be forced to pay a majority of the cost improvements is particularly a concern for people. Why would the needs of landlords, many of whom don't live in Alameda, trump popular opinion and the needs of the city's most vulnerable uh, residents? Are we a compassionate city or are we not? Capital improvement plans don't represent the will of the people of Alameda, but rather the will of landlords, many of whom don't live here, but are simply profiting off of our need for housing. Please do the right thing and do away with CIP altogether. Thanks. Thank you. Our next speaker. Uh, Tony Grimm. Welcome, Speaker Grimm. Good evening. I would like to draw your attention to the tenant hardship exemption that is only briefly mentioned in the proposed new ordinance under option A. 
In the rent program's first exhibit, policy update, the hardship exemption is clearly defined as recipients of certain public assistance or as having a gross income of less than 80% of the area medium income. But that is not stated in the proposed ordinance. Although the ordinance goes into the weeds in some of their official definition, the tenant hardship exemption is not mentioned at all in the definitions, leaving it open to interpretation and late revisions. It should be added to the definitions and clearly stated. Related to that, the rent program hasn't program figured out what to do if one or more hardship exemptions are approved in a building that is on the cusp of a tier classification. The proposed ordinance talks about the number of units subject to the pass-through as determining the percentage of the pass-through, but that could change with approved hardship exemptions. For example, a tenant in a 16-unit building might, might first be told they have to pay 50%, but then if, if pass if hardship exemptions are approved, it would go it would go up to 75%. This conundrum just highlights how absurd it is to make a tenant pay more beyond their rent increase on inconsistent arbitrary circumstances plucked out of the air with no supporting data or logic. There is no evidence to show that dividing up our housing stock into categories by size will result in a fair system. In fact, no aspect of the proposed CIP is fair to the, the renters. The people have filled your inboxes with over 100 pages of letters as opposed to only one letter from a landlord advocate. Why aren't you listening? Who do you represent? Is the slogan at Alameda being changed to everyone belongs here, dot, 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 as long as you own property? Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker, Darcy Morrison. Welcome, Speaker Morrison. Are you there, Speaker Morrison? Did we do our announcement about? Oh, it looks like she was. Able. Oh, there you are. Hi. You're good. Okay, I couldn't see the screen entirely. Okay. Well, I was say the way this issue was handled at the November 21st meeting was very irresponsible. The public has a right to know what the reasoning is when a vote has changed so that they can address that reasoning. To simply refuse to communicate is essentially rude and certainly so in a public setting like this. Anyone who runs for council has to be prepared to answer questions and communicate their position. It is unfortunate too that this item could not be moved to a more accessible date so the public could more easily participate. It also sounds like council doesn't understand the CIP thresholds and what lowering the threshold means. Drastically lowering the threshold for CIP approval is liable to open the floodgates on CIP passers. I'm guessing that many tenants have ignored this issue because it seems rather difficult to follow. It will come as a major shock when they're suddenly hit with their landlord's bills for upgrades. At that point, the issue may really blow up, and frankly, I hope it does. If the council decides to pass an ordinance with a threshold of $10,000 applying to most of the city's rental housing, which is ridiculous, then the majority will deserve the public blowback. And as Tony said earlier, why aren't you listening? Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker. Uh, that was our last speaker. All right. With that, we will close public comment on item um, 7G, G, right? Yes. Um, and I'm going to lead off with a couple of comments. Um, I was troubled by the motion to rehear this item at 
this um, at this stage um, without any explanation of why. And even after hearing the explanation this evening, I am at a loss to see any information that was new that we didn't know back then. And the impact of bringing this forward to another council meeting, especially our next to the last council meeting of the year when we have a very crowded agenda of a lot of time sensitive items, a couple of which we chose to move because um, we heard from supporters of items that they didn't want to be here till 1130, 12 o'clock at night to speak on their item. But I am also concerned that there seems to be a rejection of our rent control ordinance, which is for the city of Alameda, the land of the law, the, the, the law of the land, whether you were on the council at the time and voted for it or whether you just joined the council recently, we <coughs> do have rent control. And so what I see in this attempt, and I don't know how the vote is going to go, but I'm suspecting I, I, it's been foreshadowed, is a workaround um, to rent control. We don't feel that landlords, if they can't um, charge just anything they want to tenants, then how are they going to have enough money to do repairs and whatnot? So I know from having been on that council um, back then and sat through a very long meeting that a few of us on this dais did that went till, I don't know, two, three in the morning in a very cold auditorium. Um, we, there were so many meetings, so many negotiations to make sure and hearing from landlord groups and tenant groups and staff was, was meticulous in their efforts. And, you know, there's been reference to the, the RAC, the Rent Review Advisory Committee. We terminated that. This council terminated that, and for a reason. We didn't feel that it was fair to the tenants who came before it, that um, it was a very public um, process in this room. It was chaired by a landlord who might have been seen to have a bias as a rental property owner in the city. And instead, we replaced it with the rent program that exists today that I give credit to our city attorney, Eben Shen. We've heard to Mr. Halpern, um, Bill Chapin, are you in the audience? Or maybe he's remote. And, and of course, Michael Rausch. They've done a remarkable job of resolving um, disputes between landlords of tenants, of making sure landlords and tenants understand their rights and their responsibilities, and to have a forum, a neutral forum, with a mediator who is neither a landlord nor a tenant who's just neutral um, to, to hear those concerns. So I think we've put a very fair process in place. I um, would have favored, and I know you all have heard me say this on more than one occasion, I don't think the CIP is fair. I don't think that renters who are struggling in the Bay Area, some of whom are being priced out of the market, some of whom are slipping into housing insecurity, couch surfing, sleeping on their cars, ending up sleeping in the bushes, 
I don't think that they should be burdened with helping their landlords pay for repairs and maintenance to their property, which the landlords will own, which will increase in value. And just earlier this evening, this council voted unanimously to support the warming shelter, the warming shelter that we stand up and we have for a number of years every winter because there are people in this city, in our you know, fairly comfortable middle-class city, who are living out of their cars. We have children in the Alameda Unified School District, and we know this from our point-in-time car, point-in-time count, who go to sleep at night and wake up the next morning in a van, in a camper, in a trailer. That's the roof over their head. I want to protect them. I want to get them housed. I want to keep others from slipping into homelessness. We heard Mr. John Brennan, who's um, one of the, the leaders of the Christ Episcopal Church Warming sh um, Shelter, tell us there is a direct connection to the warming shelter, between the warming shelter and item 7G. And he said, I hope you will leave the CIP as it is so that we don't further create vulnerable renters. And so I, I understand that we, you know, we support the warming shelter. We're glad it's there. I want to give it less clients. I want to eventually put it out of business. And in this land of plenty in the state of California, the fourth largest economy in the world, there is no reason that anyone should live unsheltered in our state. And I believe, and as a, a board member of the League of California Cities, I say this over and over, every city in our state has a role to play, has a duty. And if everyone did what they needed to do, we could and homelessness. So I, I just, it troubles me greatly to think that we might be backsliding. Again, I would have done away with CIP altogether. I could tell from some signals, you know, you learn to kind of read your colleagues that I wasn't going to get three votes to, um, to accomplish that, but I had a compromise motion and I supported it. So I just want us to remember the big picture. We don't, nothing exists in a vacuum. We're all interrelated. I think I talked last time about um, getting to sit in on a webinar from the Harvard School of Public Health where the speaker was Jacinda Ardern, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, and she talked about learning how behind every policy decision, every vote that the elected body makes are human beings impacted by that vote. So that is my fervent hope that we will remember that tonight and we will do the right thing. Thank you, um, and I'm uh, going to call on my colleague, um, Councilmember Vella. Thank you, Madam Mayor. And I think um, one of our other priorities at the League of Cities that we voted on um, specifically, I know we meant, you mentioned earlier uh, addressing climate change and, and resiliency, but uh, we're, one of our other pol uh, priorities uh, is housing. And, uh, um, and thank you, Madam Mayor. I just, um, there was a press and, release on our priorities. I just handed yeah, it to my colleague. And specifically to expand investments to prevent and reduce homelessness and increase the supply of affordable housing. Um, not only are we calling uh, for additional funding, ongoing funding from the state, um, but we're also committed to doing our part uh, to, to um, you know, to do what we need to do uh, to keep residents off the streets and get them into safe, stable, and affordable housing. Uh, that improves uh, 
you know, partnerships to improve access to wraparound services, including mental health and substance use treatment. Um, but California Cities is also um, supporting ongoing funding to cities to jumpstart construction for affordable housing um, while ensuring cities retain local decision making and flexibility. But part of this is also making sure that we are not increasing uh, the number of our constituents who, who need housing. And, um, you know, I had hoped that the, um, you know, that the, the compromise uh, that we had reached um, the other week um, kind of, you know, really, and the compromise uh, for those of you who weren't at that meeting was really based off of the types of loans available. Um, there are different types of loans. Um, some people take out a residential loan or, or standard loan um, uh, for, for uh, housing uh, with certain number of units um, for other uh, multi-unit um, buildings, and this is where the compromise was struck. Um, it was really about uh, commercial loans uh, that, that folks have to take out for those units. Um, and so rather than kind of creating tiers um, without really tying it to a substantive thing, um, that was the compromise. And um, you know, my goal is to you know, find a way to uh, prevent housing displacement uh, as much as possible. I think that that's something that we've worked very hard on. Um, so I, I you know, would hope that we would at least uh, reconsider um, the, the um, compromise measure um, specifically because uh, you know, I hear the arguments getting put out there um, by, by our landlords. Um, there are different types of loans uh, available to folks uh, relative to their property and to their investment. And that there's a reason that multi-units um, over a certain uh, unit threshold um, are a, a different type of loan, a commercial loan, and that's because they're viewed as an investment property. Um, and so one would hope that with, with those higher number of units, uh, folks are um, treating it like a business. They're taking out essentially a commercial loan. Um, they're using it as an investment, and at that point, they would be um, reinvesting in their property in such a way that it shouldn't have to adversely impact um, the tenants. So, um, you know, my hope is that there's uh, still possibility around the compromise, which was up for a second reading. Um, I, I also think that, and in here, uh, you know, this is a an issue and an item that we've talked about uh, a number of times, and that was why I was asking questions um, when the item got pulled from second reading about um, kind of the direction things were going to allow for continued involvement in conversation from members of the public, um, and also just clarity in terms of if the council is changing direction, uh, why that is, um, and to allow for that opportunity. So um, my hope is still out there that we could get to that compromise. I will not be supporting um, the staff recommendation for the reasons stated. Um, I, you know, I, my, I think my preferences and my position on um, uh, tenants' issues uh, is, is well documented, but um, certainly I felt like the, the compromise um, at least addressed some of the concerns from some of my colleagues. Thank you. Thank you. Vice Mayor, do you want to go next? Uh, I could wait. I'd like to go next. Councilmember Harris Spencer. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Um, thank you, uh, Councilmember Bella. And I want to thank all of the members of the public and staff. Uh, this is, as we've heard, an ongoing issue. Um, I actually look at this in regards to staff's proposal as being the next step. Um, they did build in, and, and in fact, I was going to follow up. There was a speaker in regards to the tenant hardship exemptions, what it would take to qualify for that. Is that a question you're asking of staff? Yes. Okay, staff. They're looking. 
It's in the staff report. Do you want me to point it to you? Madam Mayor, if I may. Oh, yeah, it's um, Mr. Roush. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, the, the hardship exemption specifics will be in a regulation rather than in the ordinance. And we put that there because there may be uh, the need to uh, be flexible with that and to revise it from time to time. And rather than have that uh, come back to council, it's in the regulation. But it does provide very specifically uh, what the income qualifications are, what the process is for a tenant to uh, apply for that hardship, and a whole process involved in case there's a disagreement about whether the hardship applies or whether it continues. So all that will be set forth in a regulation with very much, uh, with uh, very specific, and it's been drafted, but obviously not implemented yet because we need to see what the council is going to do with the CIP policy uh, in general. Uh, the other question or the other issue that was raised by the speaker uh, suggested that if there were, for example, uh, 16 units and one person uh, applied for an exemption and got that, that it would reduce the number to 15 and therefore the higher percentage uh, would be recovered. That's not accurate. The, uh, the exemption or the, the, uh, the tiers would be based on the number of units. If one of the tenants in a 16 unit building uh, qualifies for the exemption, that will not reduce the number of units overall. Uh, it will continue to be in that range of 16, if that answers uh, the council member's question. Yes, I appreciate that clarification. I also wanted to ask what types of improvements can fall under uh, this CIP policy? Well, they're set forth in the ordinance with some specificity. Maybe uh, Mr. Uh, maybe Ryan has those uh, readily available to show on the screen. Well, is it also what's on page four of the staff report, the new roofing foundation upgrade? Yeah, that is. I want to call everyone's attention to our staff report, page four. But if you want to read it, go ahead. And it won't take up my time. Uh, let's see. Let me give me a second to pull up the staff report, but I do. I want to emphasize that it qualifying improvements would be expanded to include utilities for energy efficiency, conservation, uh, fire sprinklers and alarm systems, replacement of stairs or railing, and of course, lead remediation. And give me a second to pull up the staff report. Oh, you're looking I'm, for I'm that. Happy. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm happy to, I'm happy to read it. If that. would you read it? Yeah, yeah. I'm happy I just, to read the list. My um, clock starts running when I read, course. and I don't want to. Of course, I'm happy to the, read. The city attorney, if he doesn't yes, have a I'm, clock. I'm, I'm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the list of improvements, in addition to what Mr. Halpern uh, listed, which are the newly proposed additions, also uh, the previously included and uh, uh, list includes new roofing, foundation upgrades, and seismic retrofitting new plumbing, electrical, and HVAC systems for all uh, or substantially all of the building, exterior painting or new siding, installation of energy or water conservation devices, repairs to address the findings in a wood-destroying pest uh, organisms report, uh, improvements that exceed or meet the disability and access standards, 
And on this point, Council, I do want to share one more point, which is that at the last meeting, I do believe that Council Member Vela had made a request, which staff incorporated, which is 100% of the improvements related to lead improvement, uh, given that the city is a member of the uh, uh, the lead JPA, and so that, while not in the staff report, was requested by Council Member Vela and included in the staff recommendation. So I appreciate that. Those are all things that we need done to the properties to make them habitable and safe for the tenants. Uh, now, how many applications have we had for the less than 20, 24 to two units since we started this policy? So there have been uh, 14 total in the program's history, um, and only one of those, of course, was larger than 24 units. And the 14, were those implemented? So they had a pass? Only four of them were approved, uh, and only, uh, and the ones that were approved were for something we are posing or moving in the current policy, which is to terminate a tenancy for capital improvement. Only one of them was approved with an actual pass through to the tenant. All right, so I appreciate that because what we've seen is it hasn't really been utilized that often and we do have these smaller landlords and we're trying to figure out a way to, I th that's what I think has happened. Staff, you've met with landlords and you've met with tenants and, and I, when I see this, I actually think this is quote unquote a compromise uh, offer from staff. Of, let's try this and see how this works um, and then it can come back and be revisited if, you know, if, if uh, we all decide it needs to be. So I do support this. I want to thank staff and the tenants and the landlords, everyone that has participated in this process. And I see this as an evolving issue and it just, we keep coming back and we make changes and we, we do want the uh, uh, rentals to be uh, shored up so that they are safe. We know we have many rentals that are very, very old. Hundreds, uh, could, they could be 100 years old. And uh, we do want to have you know, we need to get, get them repaired. We know we have the smaller mom and pops. Uh, I actually would like to work with our quote unquote mom and pops as opposed to having someone like Blackstone come in and purchase. And then I get complaints from the tenants under those uh, uh, capital really venturous that, you know, it's completely not personable at all. So where, where is what I'm gonna to refer to as the sweet spot? So that's why I do support this. I think it's a good compromise. Um, and I made the motion before and, and I will move to adopt uh, the um, option A along with these other um, requests of ending the moratorium. Yeah. Uh, because I, I do see it as the next reasonable uh, uh, change in the policy. Um, I had a couple of clarifying questions. Um, one was the, the list that you gave. What time period was that? Because we haven't had rent control or CIP for very long, and then there was also a moratorium. Um, so how many months excluding the moratorium and from when the CIP was in place? Let's see. So the CIP's been in place since 2016. Um, and then, so going back to 2016, uh, only 14 total applications. And again, only two of those were for properties larger than 25 units. Only one of them for a smaller uh, three unit property, four unit property 
had a pass-through approved. But it wasn't from 2016 to date because there was a moratorium in place, correct? Yeah, that is correct. Uh, the CIP could be uh, submitted, application, it could be tentatively approved, but those pass-throughs couldn't be implemented, imposed until after the moratorium. I see the Oh, City Attorney Shannon. Yeah, yes, Council Member, if I may uh, add on to that. And, and first, if I may ask the City Clerk to put up slide seven of the original presentation, which um, provides visual to this, to answer Council Member Vela's question. Um, during the moratorium period, um, we were not accepting applications for 25 or larger, but we would continue to accept 25 or smaller. And so, in a way, it is from 2016 to date, except that during the last six months period, we were not accepting large. Uh, applications for over 25 units. And, and my second question is, um, have there been any applications um, since the, um, in their intervening time? Uh, if you mean since the council's adoption of the moratorium, uh, no. Are there any applications currently pending? No, I would say we received uh, several inquiries uh, of various landlords that are interested. They of course wanted to see what would play out um, but we have not received a completed application or even one that's close. And for the folks that are inquiring, what size properties do we know? Uh, I've spoken with the landlord about a 20-unit property, uh, a 16-unit property, a 12-unit property, uh, and about a half dozen or so landlords have reached out to us with two to four-unit properties. Again, just general inquiries to ask about how this works. So in, in essence, if we change from the compromise to this, those would all be permissible, is that correct? That's correct, yep. Anything less than 25. So my question would be why we're looking backward rather than looking forward. And if the argument is, well, gosh, this has been used so few times, wouldn't that be the argument for just ending it all together because it's not worth the um, staff and administrative time. But I'm also concerned with the impact that this will have on tenants going forward. So the suggestion that we try it out and see how it works, so is there an um, appropriate number of tenants who are priced out of the market, forced out of their homes, have to leave Alameda, children being uprooted from schools, their community? Is that how we measure this? Um, and also, um, I would imagine, well, I'm not going to imagine. Anyway, those are some concerns I have. Councilmember Vela. I mean, I think my concern is is that you just listed a, a number of inquiries, and if we look at this and we are looking um, forward, um, that, that means that there's a number of uh, applications actually above and beyond what we've seen um, coming in uh, in a fairly short amount of time. And when you when we start adding up the number of units potentially impacted based off of um, the number of units that you stated, a 20 unit, a, a 16 unit, a 12 unit, um, that's a lot of households that are gonna be potentially impacted at a time when, yes, inflation is coming down, it's been at an all time high for the last few years. So, I, you know, it, it's that kind of thing of, you know, I, I don't necessarily wanna wait for harm in order to, to make a change um, to, to course correct and, um, you know, I am very concerned with the number of inquiries that we're getting um, that, that expresses some sort of interest potentially, and then we're going to see the residual. Thank you. All right. Any other comments? 
Vice Mayor Desai. Um, just quick comments. It's similar to what I said the first time we went over this. You know, what really caught my attention was the um, uh, carefulness um, with which staff had prepared um, the uh, CIP program, particularly with regard to protecting those who are um, low income very low income and those who are extremely low income because within this program those who are either low income very low income or extremely low income are protected through hardship provisions so i do believe that this cip um, that staff has prepared um, is aligned with the um, uh, spirit of Alameda's rent control program, which was meant to protect those who are the most vulnerable um, from, you know, the rental market. Um, so I, I know there's differences of opinion here, but the, the facts are the policy is targeted, is targeting protections to those who are low income, very low income, and also extremely low income. So. You know, it's something that, that caught my attention the last time, and, it, and, it's, it, and it's certainly still there. Um, and at, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what brought us here in the first place was, in fact, you know, the, um, the alarm that was raised by the residents in the over 400 units South Shore apartments. And my feeling is that with this um, program that we had asked staff to put together, um, we have responded um, in a fashion that basically hits it out of the ballpark for, for the residents in South Shore Apartments, saving them from the CIP. That I mean, we're, we're kind of forgetting that they were at risk of having, what, roughly $24 million worth of improvements um, that they were going to shoulder. And that's what brought us here. And so we put together this um, program. Um, so, you know, I supported option A the first time, um, and, and I continue to support option A. And the thing that really catches my eye, frankly, is the um, hardship protections that staff had put together for low income, very low income, and extremely low income. I've got a question. Um, does the CIP apply to housing authority properties? Uh, Madam Mayor, nothing in the rent control ordinance applies to housing authority properties, and so the CIP does not. So when we're talking about residents in the low and very low <coughs> income category, I, I hear you talking about Section 8 voucher holders, and I, um, I think that there is some confusion there. Just of clarification. Sure. No. Um, as indicated in the staff, if households um, are participating in certain um, programs like, sec like Section 8 or, um, or I think um, SSI, those programs are given as clear indication that they are de facto low income because by definition in order to to participate in those programs actually you have to be very low income not just low income but but as indicated though 
Low income is not just synonymous with programs, federal programs or statewide programs for, for, for very long. It's not just synonymous with uh, participation in, in, in these programs, but the definition of low income is based upon 80% of median. So what that means is, for example, whether if we decide to use um, the area median income uh, for a family of three, that's if you make less than $101,000, $102,000, you're low income. Um, for, a, for a family of two, uh, if you make, make less than $99,000, oh wait, hold on. Oh, these are my reading glasses. If you make less than $90,000, you're low income. So, so there is not only income definition with respect to eligibility in certain programs, but there's also income, low income definition, very low income definition, and extremely low income definition with regard to where you lie in regard to the income scale. Um. Did you, did you want to forgive me just to add a little something to that is that again as, my, as mr. Roush had mentioned the requirements specific requirements and procedures uh, for financial hardships would be established by a regulation but we looked at uh, similar to what San Francisco uses which is that 80 percent of area median income as well as uh, you know SSI um, and means tested public assistance The definition, just back, the definition of low income is 80 percent, um, less than 80 percent of meet area median income. That's why we use 80 percent. But we're saying the same thing. Okay. Anything further, Vice Mayor? Yes. Um, um, thank anything you. further, Vice Mayor? Oh, He's oh, the no, Vice Mayor. No, no thank you. No, <laughs> All right, Council you. Member um, Jensen. Thank you. I um, I wanted to respond to your suggestion. Hopefully, it was just a suggestion that this workaround to rent control is um, or, or this CIP proposal presented by staff is a workaround to rent control and or my workaround to rent control. I um, didn't actually want to work around and I wasn't on the city council when rent control, including the CIP was adopted by the council, including you. So I'm not trying to work around anything. I'm just as a new council member trying to make sure that it is equitable. And I think actually equity is one of the things that I'm moving towards, and I think staff's proposal was equitable. As one speaker noted, rent should go to improvements and supporting tenants, and I believe that completely. We heard from rent control, rent program staff, that the improvements to support health and safety are allowed, and we've seen that in the proposal, but what we ad adopted and what I voted for was to just allow that for two to four unit buildings, except for lead abatement. And that, to me, isn't equitable. I think that um, I don't believe that some owners should have of larger properties <coughs> should have the option to should not be able to do health and safety improvements should not be able to to um, to be able to have a CIP to in order to comply with mandates either by the city of Alameda or by the state. And um, as one speaker noted, rent should go to improvements and to supporting tenants. So this is what staff has recommended and this is what I support. I think that, uh, that the other issue was the, the end. I did support the, or the amended proposal for two to four units, but I, um, in reconsidering that, I, I 
don't really understand, and I try to get more information about the difference between rental, excuse me, residential and commercial loans. And um, I personally don't own rental property um, or multi-units, but if anyone on the council or anyone here does, then you can explain to me how that works so I could understand better the difference, distinction between residential and commercial loans and why only four units would be eligible for a residential um, loan to do improvements. I also want to point out, since I do have time remaining, that when I joined the council, the regional housing needs assessment had just been approved with the expectation that homeowners would be converting large properties to, to contribute to the housing rental stock. Um, I recall Andrew Thomas actually presenting some scenarios for two to four unit properties expanding to larger multi-unit buildings. There was discussion of whether there would be rentals of ADUs, whether you could have four ADUs and two um, rentals or even more than that. And so I think that this council prior to my joining was very thoughtful and thought about expanding rental properties. They had established the rent program to ensure that rents could only be increased to a certain amount. And where we are now is that we have had a program that's been working. We haven't had a tremendous number of renters displaced. We heard about this program. Um, I appreciated that the smaller housing providers will ensure that existing small landlords have the ability to make needed improvements, and they should continue to have that ability. Two to four units, but why only up to four units? Up to the largest units, the large multi-unit buildings should be able to make the needed improvements that could allow for additional rental units. And again, it's not just improvements. When state or local mandates are established that require property owners to make changes to their properties to improve their facilities, whether it be for lead or health or, or for seismic or for insurance or for fire improvements or for soft stories or things that are coming from either the state or the city of Alameda, it to me is not equitable to say to a landlord, well, you were in the rent control program because you owned a property that was built before 1984 and so you have to comply with this new requirement, but you can't increase your rent to any degree in order to make those improvements. And I think that um, what we've heard, not from a lot of people, but we, we might in fact be losing housing stock if that were the case. And so it's my hope that there's not gonna be this tremendous deluge of CIP requests. It doesn't sound like from staff that that's happening. There's been some inquiries and so I'm going to suggest that this is necessary. We can review it again in the future, and I appreciate all staff's work, and I appreciate bringing it back. Now, so I'm definitely going to support it. Councilmember Jensen, could I ask you what you base um, your assertion that we haven't had a lot of uh, renters displaced on? Excuse me? You stated that we haven't had a lot of renters displaced. What is that based on? I, as I mentioned, I wasn't on the city council when the city council passed the rent ordinance. I think that was intended to stop renter displacement, as I recall, but I wasn't here, so perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps the rent ordinance was intended for a different, had a different objective other than renter displacement? 
The equity I'm concerned with is having renters pay for improvements to a landlord's property that benefit only the landlord because they own the property and benefit from the appreciation of it. Um, Councilmember Vela, did I see your hand up? Yes. I so I think um, through the chair, there there was a question about the difference between the the commercial versus the the residential lending. The commercial. Um, Lending is is different. There's different uh, rates available. Different. Uh, it's a different borrowing process. Um, there's a number of different things that that one can do with a, a it, through accessing um, uh, commercial lending that they that one cannot do um, uh, through uh, residential. So I mean, that's that's one concern that I have. There's uh, there's there's there are different. Um, um, so there are differences uh, relative to the complexity in terms of applying for them. Qualifying for a commercial loan is very different than qualifying for a residential loan. One of the things that that uh, gets looked at is, you know, the the value of the property, um, how they're, you know, what what you're what you're uh, putting forward as uh, um, collateral, things like that. Um, but. Most importantly is the fact that multi-units, where in a, a commercial loan uh, is what you would take out in order to um, uh, secure the property if you aren't paying all cash, um, are viewed as the reason that you would have to go out and get a commercial loan is specifically because it's viewed as a business and an investment property. Um, there's no way you're, you're occupying um, all of the units that are there. Um, and, and so it, it, I do think that there's some differences in terms of uh, the approach that one may have in, in that setting versus in a setting where, uh, you know, we've, we've heard from landlords that say, well, I'm, I'm a landlord, I live in the unit, uh, or, or I live on the property, those sort of things. Um, so, you know, I do think that that was one of the reasons that we were looking at it, at least I was looking at it from that standpoint. Um, also, I think there's a concern, an overarching concern, um, that, and I think we heard it, a lot of the people that are inquiring are people that, that would have uh, been unable to apply um, under that. Um, so my, my concern is that folks that basically have these, these in, like holy investment properties are now looking um, at applying. And I do think that if we're coming at it from a standpoint of, well, you know, let's see what happens. I do think we're gonna, we are gonna find out very quickly, um, and we are gonna see an influx of applications, and potentially, um, the the magnitude of people being impacted is is going to be fairly high because we're, you know, we're hearing from uh, landlords that have properties with a number of units. And just to clarify, landlords aren't allowed to increase their rent even under rent control. Excuse me. Could you repeat what I said so I don't use up all my time, Madam Clerk? Yeah. Landlords are not. They, they are under oh, rent they control. Are. They are. Yeah. They are allowed. Landlords right. can increase They're their rent. They're under to certain limits. So uh, I, I, as I um, have read rent, the, our rent program, landlords have a certain limit. They can only increase to certain limits. And prior to the proposal from staff for CIP, the CIP was, could have been up to um, much higher limits, much higher than 10%. And what staff's proposing now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it would limit the CIP to um, even amortized up to only, no, along with the regular rent increases, no more than 10%. Yeah. 
Eight percent. Excuse me. Uh, Councilmember Harris Spencer, you had your hand up. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I actually had wanted to follow up on that in regards to the amount of what the pass through, the caps on the pass through, because that is another uh, unique feature of this proposal as opposed to uh, fair return. Can you go over uh, how much is actually allowed to be passed through? Uh, yes, Councilmember, and my, hopefully my colleagues will help me here. Um, my understanding is that we uh, propose two different types of caps, which one of them is a 5% cap on uh, CIP pass-throughs, and on top of that, an 8% overall cap for uh, uh, cost of living adjustment, banking, and CIP together cannot exceed 8%. So there is essentially a double cap. For a total of 13%? Oh, no, not at all, council member. It's, they are not mutually exclusive. They work together. So the maximum is 8%. Um, however, in a, in a hypothetical scenario, let's say the cost of living adjustment is only 1% uh, and there's no banking, uh, a maximum CIP pass-through could only be 5%. So in that scenario, it would be 6 But in a year with high cost of living adjustments, you know, let, let's say it's a 6 you know, it can't be 6 but let's say 4% cost of living adjustments, um, the 8% cap comes in to ensure that CIP banking and CPI does not exceed 8%. And can you remind us what the banking is? Uh, the banking regulation permits uh, a landlord to essentially forego a rent increase in a particular year uh, then to implement it in a later year. Which we saw during COVID, right? That's right. So we encourage landlords to not increase the rent even though they could have under our rent control during COVID. And we had landlords do that, right? And so we give them this option of being able to get it later. A council member, in fact, during COVID, the, the council adopted a moratorium on rent increases, and so there could be no rent increases during COVID. Um, and so any rent increases that were, could have been authorized would have been banked. Okay, so we do have landlords that ha we're not allowed, even though we have rent control, to do any increase at all. And that's why we now have this banking. We do want them to do improvements, but the total under this plan at most is an 8% increase. That's right. That includes the, the rent control increase, the banking that they didn't recoup during the COVID, um, and then now the repairs. That's right. But at most, 8%. That's right. Okay, so for me, I think that's very reasonable of trying to work with our uh, landlords uh, especially the ones that have the fewer units. And the number of the two to four units, we know we have Victorians that have more than four units um, and, and that sometimes they are actually people that took a home, they may live there themselves and have multiple units within that uh, property. But so from my perspective, I think, you know, it's good to include our Victorian uh, landlords um, and we actually don't have very many in that next group. Uh, it's my understanding based on your, your charts that you all provided earlier, but um, I did make a motion to approve option A, uh, which I think I want to make sure also then I need to say uh, and to end the moratorium. Or, is, or right. Um, Council Member Bell, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I have a question. Question, go ahead. Uh, uh, the mic. 
my question is, there, there's a scenario, can you go through the multi-year scenario of what those wage in, uh, what those uh, rent increases could be like? Because I, I think it's a misnomer to do it as a one-off of, it could at most be 8%. Council member, if I understand you correctly, 8% uh, is the cap every year. And so that means it could be 8% in year one, 8% in year two, 8% in year three, if, if, if that's what you're asking. Uh, yes. It, it is possible to, you know, uh, under the cap to do 8% potentially every year. Right, and so essentially compounding that 8% gets to be quite substantial, which was part of the reason we had a movement for rent control was that we were, people were looking at fairly high rent increases uh, year over year. Compounding. Well, 8% of the given rent and then 8% of the increased rent, correct? Year over year? No. It's 8%. Uh, Mr. Halpern, come on back. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so what we would do in a, in a hypothetical situation, uh, a CIP is approved. You look at the tenant's current rent. You look at how many units are eligible to pay this pass-through and you come up with a flat amount that's less than 5% of that rent and how many years it would take to pay off through amortization. So if they're, the landlord is going to take an AGA increase or a banked rent increase, we make sure that that is less than 8% and that, that the length of time to pay off that pass-through amount would be extended. But in any year, uh, the pass-through would be no more than 5% of the rent and when the landlord wants to do another increase, they can do do more no no more than eight percent. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, I have a question about that. Yes. So, um, with regard to that, that eight percent is in the proposal that we're discussing tonight. Prior to um, the pandemic and when the rent control program was uh, adopted by the council, what would the maximum have been then, with including the CIP? Yeah, so the, the, the previous CIP policy, there was no cap on that pass-through amount. So this council approved the CIP um, to be unlimited. Thank you. Well, that, that was a question. Mr. Shen. Uh, uh, you know what? We are not having audience participation. You have all done so well this entire evening, so I would really appreciate continued to do so. No, I, I, the city attorney, I think, is one to answer. Then I'll go to you, Vice Mayor. Uh, I think that's essentially right. The CIP did not, the existing CIP policy uh, today does not contain a limitation. There is a state law limitation of 10%, um, and as we've shared with the council, um, <laughs> There's no judicial guidance on whether or not that directly applies to CIP. Um, so that, that is the one nuance I want to add. Thank you. Um, then I'd second the motion to reduce the CIP that was established initially to the 8% as provided by the staff proposal. And Vice Mayor, you had your hand up. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure to clarify something because there was a reference made to 8% one year, 8% next year, 8%. Actually, that's not the way that it would work. I mean, mathematically, let's just, for math's sake, let's say there's a $1,000 rent, and then, of, of course, there's not a $1,000 rent, but let's say there's a $1,000 rent, and then there is a CIP and, um, uh, uh, um, and the rent increase allowable, and let's say 8% is hit. So the rent can therefore be increased from $1,000 to $1,080. 
in the following year, it's not going to be rent increased by 8%. It will be increased by the allowable rent adjustment. So it would only be increased by 8% if there's a completely new CIP, which I don't think there. So the base gets rebuilt, but it doesn't like, um, uh, you don't then have another 8% increase from the following in the subsequent years. It's, it's, the, it's the rent increases based upon the, our rent control formula. Uh, and, and Madam Mayor and, and Vice Mayor, just to oh, Mr. Rapp, sorry. a little bit, a little bit more. up with my papers, sorry. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, to, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to, to, to butt in, but just no, no, as a, another, another subtlety of this thing is that you cannot use banking uh, twice. Yes. You have to wait 24 months before you can implement banking. So if you use it in year one, you have to wait 24 months before you can bank it again. Um, similarly, with respect to the, the as, in, as we've indicated, that there is this overall 8%, but reaching that in any particular year may be difficult because of the, the limitation with respect to the banking. Also, you cannot apply for a CIP um, pass-through except once every 24 months as well. So if you get a CIP in year one and you want to come back again and do it again, you have to wait at least 24 months before you can do that. I'm not saying that eventually there's not compounding, but just there, there are some nuances in the, the way that the ordinance is drafted. Thank you, and as far as certainty for the tenants, that's difficult to come by, I would say. Councilmember Ravelli, you've got your hand up. Oh, um, Council, um, uh, City Attorney Stan, please. Yes, um, Madam Mayor, just, just to com conclude the point on the 8%, I, I think I, I just want to give a scenario where that could happen, which is that let's say the city approves a 5% CIP pass-through, one pass-through, and then the CPI in the following year is 3%. So that's how you would get another 8% rent increase the second year. I mean, I agree with Mr. Roush, you can't take out a second banking, but it, you know, that is a hypothetical scenario that in a high, continuing high inflation cycles, it is theoretically possible. I also agree with Mr. Roush, maybe practically, you know, hopefully we see inflation coming down, but it's, it is a theoretical possibility. Um, I did, if I may, also just ask the question of the motion that's been seconded. Um, I just want to under... May I see what question, I think, did you have a question, Councilman Rivella? To clarify, it's as as written, and it doesn't include any of the other staff recommendations, like lead, things like that. Well, that was actually my question. Okay, okay. Uh, and the that, it being the motion, is that what you're saying? Okay, back to you, Mr. Chen. If I may, so the, the, the question I had was exactly about lead, was that uh, at the last meeting, the council did include 100% lead, um, and I wanted to make sure that yeah, I, I just want to understand whether or not this motion includes that 100% lead or not. Okay, is this coming back to me now? Because um, I had asked earlier, but I got interrupted before. So I'm happy to resume my questions about my motion, if this yeah, is the time. I didn't realize you got interrupted, excuse me, or whoever it um, happened from. Um, the, but the 100% pass-through for lead, wasn't that just for the units that we, that we approved in the modified motion? Uh, last time it was, and so I just wanted to understand where lead falls in this current motion so that staff can correctly implement your direction. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Councilmember Harris Spencer. Right, so thank you. So I had been looking at this, uh, your staff report, uh, and it has the alternatives, but it says, you know, introduce the ordinance revising CIP policies option A, 
either as recommended by staff or with revisions and repeal resolution 15138. So um, I want to make sure, so I'm, I know it's option A, but in regards to if there was anything else, which sounds like lead, that I'm happy to include that. Um, and, and I don't know if any of the council wants to discuss that. Was there anything else that you recall that we modified before? Council member notes that the only modifications 100% led for the categories that you approved. Okay, and then repeal the resolution 15138. That that needs to be part of my motion. That does. Thank oh. you very much. And and if I may just offer one more clarification, um, this motion does not include does not need to, and the council member is not making uh, a budget. Uh, resolution because that was already previously approved. Even though it's agendized here because the council directed us to bring it all back, we're not asking the council to appropriate more funds. Uh, it's not part of this motion and, and, and we and, and appreciate the clarification. Okay, so I appreciate that because that was on here too and I, I thought that that would continue that we didn't need, that's for temporary relocation tenant assistance program. So we did include that before. So that continues. So that's another good thing I believe that we're doing as this council. So then that, that is my motion. And Madam Clerk, was that, do you have clarity on that motion? Okay, and it's been seconded by Council Member uh, Jensen. And I'd like to make another comment. Of course. Just real quick, so uh, I am also a tenant. I've shared that before. Um, and I am, in regards to when you hear the comments that there's uncertainty, I think every tenant knows that. We know there's uncertainty. Um, so. Um, I, for me, when I look at this, I do think that staff is trying to figure out the nuance. We also know that a lot of us live in homes that are, they need repairs. We know that. And so that's what, why I support this to try to um, move along. But there are built-in caps that you do not get with the fair return. There are um, you know, uh, exemptions you do not get with the fair return that I think staff has really tried to accommodate. So thank you. We've had a motion, we've had a second. All those in favor, please signify by stating aye. 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 Those opposed, state no. No. No, the motion carries three to two. Okay, with that everyone, we are gonna take a 15 minute break. It's um, 9.17, but I'm gonna call it 9.20. We will be back here ready to start at 9.35. Okay, we'll see you then.
We're about to restart the meeting. All right. And so, James, are you ready? Yeah, he's ready in the gallery, on balcony, and on the stroke of 9.34, we are going live. It's 9, I'm 9.35, I mean. Okay, we are back in action. Welcome back, everyone, to the, still the city um, of Alameda City Council. It is still Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. And Madam Clerk, would you please introduce our next item? The 7B is a workshop to provide input on the AC Transit realigned draft bus service plan scenarios. All right, so um, come on up and introduce yourselves, please. Hi, good evening, council members, city staff. Thank you for having us this evening. My name is Maria Henderson. I'm with AC Transit. I serve as an external affairs representative in the Legislative Affairs and Community Relations Department. And tonight I am joined by Crystal Wang. She is a transportation planner to present on Realign, our initiative to remake our bus transit network post-pandemic. Today we'll be diving into service scenario proposals for routes serving Alameda. Next slide, please. Or, oh, I see a clicker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. AC Transit is the largest public bus-only transit system in California, providing a lifeline and service to essential workers, students, low-income individuals, seniors, commuters, individuals with disabilities, and anyone wishing to reduce their carbon footprint. We operate bus service in the cities and communities throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County, as far north as Richmond, and as far south as Fremont. 43% of our riders are transit dependent, without a car to get to work, school, medical appointments, or even the grocery store. Now, what is Realign? The Realign process is a comprehensive review of AC Transit's bus network focused on where the routes go, how often they're running, what days of the week and times of the day the buses are operating. Why is Realign happening? We're doing all this work for several reasons. Chief among them is that the pandemic has really shifted how riders are moving around our bus system. Our ridership is back up to 72% of where it was before the pandemic, and lots of that recovery has happened on major bus routes and outside of traditional work hours. We are also facing some challenges with bus operator hiring and retention and with funding and revenue to support sustainable bus service. We are now in phase three of Realign. To date, we have heard and incorporated community input on essential transit needs and priorities following two phases of public outreach. The input we received was key to the development of the draft map scenarios we are presenting here today. We will use the input gathered today and throughout this phase of our engagement to refine these draft service scenarios with the goal of adoption of a final plan in mid-April 2024. Our goal is to develop new bus service standards and roll out a robust public outreach and communications campaign for a new bus service network starting in summer 2024 with a targeted implementation date of August 2024. 
I'm now going to turn over the presentation to my colleague, Crystal. Thank you. Um, so, hi everyone, I'm Crystal Wink. Welcome. Um, transportation Planner at AC Transit. Um, we have three service scenarios that we're going to cover today. Two of them use the re uh, existing resources that we have today in terms of funding and bus operators. And we're calling those the balance scenario and the frequent scenario. And then we have an unconstrained scenario that serves as our vision if we were to have additional um, resources in terms of buses, bus operators, facilities, and funding. Um, so the balance scenario just largely keeps service um, coverage everywhere where it is in our area as it exists today and expands it in a few places. And it also has some line realignments that improve reliability or access to layover and restroom locations for our operators. Um, the frequent scenario is intended to provide a fast and frequent network with no line running less often than every 30 minutes. So everything would be every 30 minutes or faster. And um, many of the routing recommendations from the balanced scenario are carried through to this frequent scenario. But a key thing to note is that the additional frequency in this scenario is accomplished by reducing coverage in the network in places where the fewest people are riding. And then the unconstrained scenario is basically our visionary scenario and we're treating it as a, um, a menu um, of what's possible if we're able to get more operators and funding. So next, I'm just going to go over some of the key highlights of the lines that serve Alameda. But please note that we have a lot more detail on our website at actransit.org slash realign. Um, so lines 6 and 51. Um, one of the most significant changes to the system is how line 6 and 51 work together. So currently, line 51A runs from Fruitvale BART through Alameda along Santa Clara and then through Oakland along Broadway all the way up to Rockridge BART. And then line 51A meets line 51B at Rockridge BART so that customers looking to ride through towards the Berkeley Marina and Berkeley Amtrak uh, would need to make a transfer. But we're proposing to extend line 51 the whole way along college and then terminate it where line six currently ends in downtown Berkeley. So it'd be covering half of the existing line 51B and then we propose extending line six along University Avenue to Berkeley Amtrak. So um, basically what this does is allow for more um, trips with the one seat ride. So for Alameda residents, this change would just mean that you're able to get from Alameda into downtown Berkeley without transferring to another bus. Um, and these lines would run every 12 minutes in the balance scenario and every 10 in the frequent. Uh, line 96 currently runs from Alameda Point to the intersection of Fruitvale Avenue and MacArthur in Oakland. Um, and in both the balance and the frequent scenarios, line 96 routing would remain unchanged um, in Alameda, but the routing in Oakland would be modified to serve Brooklyn Basin. So um, it'll still serve the Alameda Point area, the Alameda Food Bank, um, downtown Oakland, and it would run every 30 minutes. Uh, these are the Transbay lines in Alameda that provide service to Salesforce Transit Center. Uh, currently, line O goes from Fruitvale BART to Salesforce, line OX goes from Bay Farm to Salesforce, and line W goes from Broadway and Blanding to Salesforce. Um, and in both scenarios, line OX, um, which is Bay Farm to Salesforce, would be discontinued, but the Bay Farm coverage would be maintained by extending line W into Bay Farm, as shown in this orange line. Um, and then parts of line OX, like along Ensignal, would still be accessible by line O. 
Um, in the balance scenario, there are no changes proposed to lines 20, 21, or 39. But in the frequent scenario, line 21, which um, currently goes from Oakland Airport through Bay Farm along Park Street and then into Oakland, would be discontinued. And then line 20, which currently serves South Shore Center, would be reconfigured as a crosstown route by extending it into West Alameda along Maine and then into Bay Farm along Otis and Island, but not all the way to the airport. And then line 39 that currently operates between Fruitvale BART and Skyline High School would be extended into Alameda down Park Street um, to the South Shore Center and then would operate every 15 minutes, um, seven days a week. So that would provide a simpler and more frequent service between Alameda and the Fruitvale Corridor. I, I ran through that pretty quickly, but um, this is just a summary overview of what all the scenarios look like in terms of the um, number of lines in each frequency category. And again, I just wanna note all of these are just draft proposals right now and we, we may be making some adjustments. Um, but again, there are there's a lot more detail um, on our website where you can look at each line individually, see all the changes and then make comments. And so now I'd like to hand it back over to Maria. All right, thank you. Thanks, Crystal. So you've just received a very high-level summary of the AC Transit Realign Project. That's a comprehensive review of our bus network. We are now asking the Alameda community to review the draft proposals and provide comments and feedback. Additionally, we are asking you to share this information with your constituents, friends, neighbors, family, and, and community so that their voices can be heard in this process as well. We have set up online and in-person opportunities to engage with us. And again, more information can be found at www.actransit.org forward slash realign. That's www.actransit.org forward slash realign. And you can find out about our upcoming events, pop-ups near bus stops, online community workshops, and share your feedback directly on the website on, on our interact, interactive map where we have our draft proposals. You can also email your comments to realign at actransit.org. Thank you so much for your time tonight and we're available for questions and comments. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Um, and do we have any, um, Mr. McGuire? Yes, we were hoping if it's possible to maybe get two extra minutes for a little staff supplemental presentation to add to that. If not, we're available for questions as well, but we did have a few slides that we wanted to also share. Okay, so, so. I can't grant you two minutes, but if I have a motion from the council approved by four of us, um, we can give you two minutes. Move to, to give them two minutes. Motion from Councilmember Bella. Second. To add two minutes, Counts, uh, seconded by Councilmember Harris Spencer. All those in favor, please signify by stating aye. 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 Okay, and that motion passes unanimously and the clock will start. Go ahead. Okay. Do we have that other presentation? Um, Brian McGuire, Planner 2 with your Planning, Building, and Transportation Department. We'll just give you a quick Cliff Notes version. Why don't you wait till the presentation's up and then yeah. start. Um, thank you. And then you. we'll start the clock. So we'll just give you a quick um, little bit of feedback and context for, for staff's um, thoughts so far on the, the draft service scenarios. Um, First and foremost, we love the 51A. Um, we uh, support the proposals to potentially add more service to that. We have some minor concerns about bunching with the removal of the Rockridge transfer. Um, and our seniors and people with disabilities love the line 51A as well, as you can see here, using it for almost half of our free transit pass program rides. 
Um, a key principle we've been trying to share with uh, AC Transit is the importance of quality transit options for our main um, growth areas, the Northern Waterfront and Alameda Point priority development areas. Instead of eliminating Line 19, like the, uh, like the frequent service scenario proposed, we would recommend um, keeping that line and restoring its, it to a more viable 30-minute service. For Line 96, we are really hoping to find a way to get to 15-minute service during the peak hours um, for many reasons, including to help obtain affordable housing funding for projects like Reshape. Um, thankfully, uh, with projects coming online, the Alameda TMA is increasingly able to do more than just provide bus passes to their members and can pitch in for additional transit service if we can collaborate successfully with our partners. We have uh, been thinking a lot about the potential changes to lines 20 and 21. Um, we think the idea of a crosstown route is great, um, but we do think there are some pretty big trade-offs with the elimination of uh, that direct service to Park Street and Webster for those lines. Um, we did share some ideas on how we might be able to keep some of the benefits of that crosstown route without sacrificing those Bay Farm and South Shore direct connections to um, Park Street and Fruitvale BART, which we have here. And we are available for Thanks. questions and looking Thank forward you. to your feedback. All right, great. Thank you. Um, do we have any clarifying questions? Um, AC Transit ladies, you can take a seat. Um, do we have any clarifying questions before we go to public comment? Vice Mayor Desa. Yes, um, yes uh, the point that uh, staff member McGuire raised about um, 51A, um, uh, the 51 bunching, um, I think historically that was the reason why we split from 51 to 51A to 51B is because the bunching that was largely caused, we believe, by um, Cal students um, or, or folks going up and down College Avenue. Um, so the question then, because in our staff report, um, are, we're indicating um, that even if we go with the return to the old 51 route, um, that there would be 10 minute um, uh, during peak. Um, 10, how are you going to um, achieve 10 minute headways given the possibility of returning to bunching? So I think that's actually an AC Transit question. Yeah. Mr. McGuire would like to have more control over AC Transit, but he doesn't. Yeah, it's actually Come on up, AC Transit, yeah. and um, if you would answer uh, the Vice Mayor's question. <coughs> Thank you for the question. Um, it is definitely a valid concern. Um, I would say right now we don't have any schedules built yet, but it is something we've been hearing continuously from members of the community about um, the concerns of um, service reliability with these longer routes. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I will just add when you refer to service reliability, when I go to meetings in downtown Oakland, I live kind of midway between the bus stop for the 51A and the bus stop for the 20. The bus stop for the 20 is closer to my house, but it's a less reliable line. And when you're down there on Otis at um, Grand Street waiting, if that 20 doesn't come, it's a long time before the next one comes. So at least on Santa Clara, you could take the O bus. Um, you have other options, but so um, I, I am just concerned about that when I. I think it's less of a question, but um, it is a concern. Okay, clarifying questions and any public comment? Do we have public comment, Madam Clerk? We do. Okay, great. Councilmember Harris Spencer. So, in regards to eliminating the bus route from Bay Farm to the airport, and it's not just Bay Farm, right? It's the East End too. You don't. So, is your proposal then to go to the airport? You go to Fruitvale, 
Yes. It would just be another no service to the airport. We've seen on Line 21, there's just not that much ridership to the airport using that line. And so um, the proposal here is to just cut that portion of service. Okay, and so you know we've heard from the port that they want to do an airport expansion. So uh, I am concerned in regards to what impacts. Do you, do you guys think that there's not going to be any increase in ridership with the doubling or whatever of the airport? Um, it is something we can look into and explore again. Like I said, these are proposals just based on what we've seen from ridership and travel patterns that we're seeing. Um, and it's just shown that it, that portion of Line 21 just has not been productive at all so far. Um, but we do make um, changes to our service four times per year. And so if and when that demand starts to become more apparent, we can explore adding service. Thank you. Are there clarifying questions, Council? Councilmember Bella. How, how would that demand become more apparent if we're if we're getting rid of the line and and ultimately people? I mean, because it is cumbersome. I'm, I will say, I'm personally personally vested in that line. Um, I'm I'm one of the few riders that you probably see on that. Um, but you know, just just curious because I do think that that is a fairly cumbersome transfer back to Fruitvale. It's going to add significant time to a point where I don't know that people would actually make use. Uh, a lot of times it's just hearing from the public, hearing a lot from the public about what kinds of lines and service they want to see that we're not currently providing. Okay. All right, I'm not seeing other hands, so let's go to public comment, please. All right, uh, Zach Bowling. Speaker Bowling. Thank you, uh, Council. Um, Right now, Alameda really lacks a true end-to-end -end connection from Bay Farm all the way to Seaplane Lagoons sort of connection. It, it is unbearable, just the number of connections you have to make to get all the way across. And a lot of the proposals that, that are being kind of discussed are either kind of looking at Alameda of like interconnections within the city, but also just as like a feeder to Oakland. And a lot of the lines are kind of looking at it that way. So, but there's no good balance between the two proposals. And I know we have this fiscal cliff to worry about, but. Um, I kind of want to echo a lot of what Mr. McGuire said also here and at the Transport Commission when this came up, but um, I, on increasing that line 19 frequency, there is one proposal that just eliminates it completely. We've already cut it back, but increasing all the lines that go to any area served by the Alameda TMA, we're trying to actively decrease the number of cars, but at the same time, we have proposals that are going to take the bus service away from those areas that we're doing the same thing in. It doesn't make any sense. We need to encourage that, especially with the Clement extension and connecting that through. That should be a corridor connecting that northern waterfront all the way to Alameda Point. Um, another part of that was the um, Line 96. It's kind of a mess. Um, and I do love that we're adding Brooklyn Basin support or, or service, but it, 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 like a Brooklyn Basin person has no reason normally to want to go to Alameda Point. And while we're realigning this, it's it's just weird. Like maybe they want to go to Alameda Landing for shopping, but then you do this like loop around Alameda Landing. It's terrible if you've ever ridden it. And then we don't have service for our first seaplane lagoon. We got rid of the 78. 
and it's service we need to bring back as we're trying to implement things. I know it had low ridership. I know we went through a lot of problems with it. I don't think it was really well vetted. I know we had the fiscal cliff. We have these issues, but we really need sort of that interconnection within just Alameda, and a lot of the focus has been on these connections back to Oakland, um, and those are sort of a lot of big input that I have, um, but I, I, I wanted to bring up the line 58, why we split it, the bunching. The line 51A, yes, it connects to Rockwell or Rockridge Bart, but it also is the most frequent line to get across Alameda today. And it is the most frequent service. It is the most consistent service. It is how I get around Alameda when I'm not driving or riding a bike, and especially as it's dark out right now. And going further and restoring 51, I worry that it won't be as consistent, it won't do what it serves Alameda to do, and then that's going to encourage more cars and put us back into a bad situation. So. Yeah, I don't like every situation. There's one public commenter that even came up with a brand new bus line called uh, Line 50. It's amazing. It goes all the way from Bayform. I don't know how feasible it is. It's amazing. Um, but if we had all the money, I would love that plan. It's amazing. Anyways, I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker um, is remote. And I would like to just remind our remote speakers that this is only on the agenda item of the um, AC Transit bus realignment. Um, and then Speaker, next speaker is Shelby Sheehan. Welcome, Speaker Sheehan. Hi there. Um, I wanted to comment on this uh, proposal just because I agree with Zach Bowling is that the reason that nobody uses a transit is because it's just not helpful, it's not reliable, and uh, it's very expensive. Uh, I had a kid, I'm out here on Alameda Point, and we tried to use the 96 and the 76 but a lot of times it wouldn't come. Um, the schedules were not help were not helpful for a teenager that wanted to either get to, to or from school or to and from a job anywhere in Alameda. Um, I think the way it, it it's configured, it just goes, it's just, it goes straight through the tunnel or meanders is a weird way, but anyway, that's what my kids told me. And I think it was like $6 to get across town and you have to have you can't get off the 96 and, and with anything but a transfer, so you have to pay more. So it's one of the many failures that we have. It's supposed to be a transit-oriented, walkable community, especially with the new development out here. And it's just, it's it's basically a farce, and I would really love to see it fixed. But um, I've, I've given up on it at this point, so that's why I almost didn't even comment. But uh, yeah, uh, Zach Bowling's comments are, well received by me, and I hope that there's more local options uh, instead of like going through to Oakland. Like I would love to see a bus that goes from Alameda Point to the airport. What a great idea that would be. So um, yeah, I mean, I just I don't have any suggestions other than that because it's just so broken. But thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker, uh, Kender. Welcome, Speaker Kender. Great, thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, I'd like to express my support tonight for city staff and all of their recommendations tonight, and in particular for their line A20. As a West End resident, having both line 20 and line 96 serve the area would be amazing, since it would improve connections to downtown Oakland and finally bring back all day cross island service to locations like South Shore and Park Street. I, I do have one quick suggestion uh, that the northern terminus of the city's proposed line A21 or AC Transit's line F39 
that the Northern Terminus be at the Chabot Space and Science Center on weekends instead of Skyline High School so that it would restore weekend service to recreational areas, trailheads, and an important educational resource that was last served by line 339 pre-pandemic. And I wanna also give a quick thank you to Speaker Bowling for the shout out for my line 50 proposal which I've shared tonight with City Council as public comment. Uh, in a perfect world, uh, I'd love to see it come true. That's all the comments I had tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next speaker. That was our final speaker. Okay, with that, we will close public comment on um, 7B. And I heard something about how expensive it is for students to ride AC Transit. AC Transit people or transportation staff, can you comment on, is there a student bus pass? I, I thought so. Does somebody want to come up and just um, inform the public? Because we don't want the public to be misinformed. Thank you for that question. Um, we do have, in addition to youth passes, there's also, I believe, uh, well, ACTC has a student transit pass program. And I believe for Alameda, it's means-based. But I'd have to double check that. And there's a list of schools under there that you can apply. And if you go to that school, you can apply for that pass. And then it gives you free AC transit. Yeah, the Clipper card, you can also apply as a youth uh, for a discount as well. Thank you um, for that. Yes, and I, I saw a nodding of head from <laughs> Ms. Foster from transportation. Uh, so yes, um, student passes free if you know means based. So um, in Alameda, I think in some cities all the students um, get free passes, but it does go by the income um, average income of the city. Um, okay, um, some. Uh, Oh, I just want to make a clarification to something that was said that we got rid of the line 78. We, the city of Alameda, sure didn't. And I'm, I'm still a little bitter that I learned about that vote of the AC Transit Board the morning after. It would have been nice to have a little heads up as the mayor um, beforehand. Um, we implored AC Transit not to end a pilot program that ran mostly during the pandemic when people weren't going back to work. So now that we find the ferry terminal parking uh, full, oftentimes um, I, you know, I get that you're working on budgeting, but we, you know, you would get service, I think, from doing that. So I, I just would like that to be a consideration. Um, uh, and no, noted. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, I, I've certainly made my point clear about no one likes to be blindsided. So let's not do that again. Um, other comments, questions, council, Councilmember Harris Spencer. Okay, so I want to thank you all for doing this, and I have been able to attend some of your community meetings and whatnot. Um, I think it's important that the bus service be able to connect us to the BART for sure, but also the airport. I do think that that matters. Um, the ferries, right, that I know was taken away, but we, as part of our transportation plan, right, we're trying to encourage people to take public transportation. And we know every time you have to transfer, it's much less likely that it's gonna actually happen. Um, and if you, you know, if you live on Bay Farm and you're trying to get from there up to Fruitvale Bar and then wait, then, right, you get to wait, and you're trying to catch a plane. Um, every transfer is actually BART. I think is really more reliable, even though they have issues of police activity every now and then. 
but the bus, um, I actually think you could correct me. I don't think you're quite as reliable, and I think that that is an important issue in regards to trying to encourage people to uh, take you uh, to ride. Um, but I do think it's important to have the bus connect us to the airport, the ferries, BART, uh, including Rockridge, um, uh, Seaplane Lagoon, and then uh, the issues of you know, oh, okay, we actually used to have our own service to help shuttle around seniors, and then we transfer them to AC Transit. And so that's another important thing for me is that they be able to go from our senior centers, including on Bay Farm, to get to Mastic, the senior center, which is on the main island, right, and not have to transfer, right? If you're elderly, it's, you know, I'm very happy to have them riding the bus, but I feel bad making them transfer to get to a senior center. Um, and then to get from the senior center to South Shore, which we know that loop, in fact, that's what it used to be, a loop, right, loop shuttle. Uh, so if you can, you know, and I think you are aware of that, but I wanted to reiterate that, that that I know is a very important need to connect our senior centers with our uh, assisted living communities. Uh, to help keep uh, the senior citizens active and, and you know as much as possible, uh, so those are my uh, suggestions. And I do support the one about Chabot on the weekends, if possible. I thought that was a great suggestion. Thank um, you for your comments. Yeah, um, the um, the line 51 does stop right in front of the Mastic Senior Center, and I believe we. We made, didn't we make senior passes available to seniors? And also, we have a great program at the Mastic Senior Center. We have a transportation coordinator, Kat Caldas, and she teaches the seniors how to ride transit, and they go on field trips, and they do all kinds of transfers. And oftentimes, when I'm coming back from Oakland, or sometimes when I'm on my way, um, you know, seniors going to and from Mastic will see me and you know sit down and chat. And so I, it's pretty exciting to see how that's being used. Um, okay, um, Vice Mayor, back to you. Yes, thank you. I just want to quickly um, uh, provide some comments. Um, first and foremost, um, express um, my appreciation to the AC Transit Board um, and staff, um, particularly the board members uh, uh, with whom uh, Council Member Jensen and, and myself uh, served together in the AC Transit City of Alameda um, Intergovernmental Liaison. Um, and those board members um, are um, Sarah Saeed, trustee AC Transit, and also Chris, uh, Mr. Peoples, um, trustee Peoples. So, and, and through those meetings, we've certainly um, heard, um, and, and it's in the staff report, you know, the tremendous difficulties that AC Transit um, is facing. Um, and so we, under, I, I, I um, understand, um, you know, the, the, the necessity um, for now to, uh, to try to rationalize the, um, uh, the, the transit system that we have in place. Um, I, I think I'm okay with staff's recommendation, or at least you know, the, the, <laughs> the draft letter that was put together. Um, although I do wanna kind of push, uh, find out, I mean, how, uh, you know, this whole 10 minute headway of the 51 uh, during um, peak hours, um, I mean, maybe in the mornings, but in the afternoons, um, and and I see that the 51 is kind of changing in the sense that you're you're in Berkeley, you're terminating um, in downtown Berkeley as opposed to going all the way down University Avenue. 
I think both uh, Council Member Jensen and myself, well, I know I used to take the 51 from Alameda to Berkeley, <laughs> so that was, you know, I remember doing all those. Um, uh, so that you know, the College Avenue Berkeley thing is all has always kind of been um, where um, difficulties arise. Um, so I do just you know um, I, I, I'm supportive of that, but I do want to hear more about how you're going to um, uh, do the 10 minute. Um, in terms of the um, uh, what is it, the 96 line? Um, I you know what I I kind of like what I'm seeing in the sense that the the new part of the 96 line is going uh, towards the new housing along the estuary. So. I think that has the prospects of picking up, um, you know, younger, newer residents who, some of whom might hop into the 96 and then come uh, um, to um, Alameda Landing. That's that's always good. Uh, other parts of, at least in Oakland, the 96 is remaining the same, and that's good in the sense that bringing people from downtown, whoever lives um, in and around um, Chinatown, um, to, to take the 96 into Alameda and then come into Alameda, go around the shopping center, either stop at Safeway or stop at um, uh, Target, and then go about the new uh, proposed route. I, I, th I think I'm okay with the 96, but you know, I'll defer to staff uh, on that. Um, yeah, it would be uh, on the line 19, um, it would be um, uh, difficult to, to, to because you know for us you know we're always talking about housing along the um, the northern waterfront, and uh, the 19 kind of has been an important part of that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe if there's funds available. I mean, if that is to be um, a line that 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 is you know um, we're going to have to AC Trans going to have to think about. Um, maybe one of the things to for for us to convey to you is. If ever funds come a bit available, maybe that might be one of the first places um, uh, that gets refunded. But you know, I'll defer to staff's recommendation on that. But it's just a thought that I'm giving to both. Um, so I, I think um, um, you know, I, I, on the Trans Bay lines, uh, the the consolidation of the W and the OX. Um, you know. Um, Again, I understand it. I mean, this is where it's not just AC Transit, but BART, you know, is facing tremendous fiscal challenges. Um, so I, I hope this is a temporary measure <laughs> so that, you know, if we come out of the pandemic, uh, fully come out of the pandemic, if, we, if you guys recover, you know, in three years from now, that, that maybe we can look at the OX being restored. Um, so, oh, one final thing. Um, yeah, in terms of the line 20, again, uh, and I just want to preface it by saying I understand the challenges you're facing, but you know, having the line 20 go up and down Park Street is, is important because I think that's a vital part where you know, you, there's a reason why people might hop onto the 20 is to go to Park Street perhaps, and so if you kind of delink that um, and the closest that they get to Park Street is Park and Otis, then I, I don't know. Um, but, but again, you know, I recognize you know, the the, the decisions that, that you're making, but since you're here asking for our feedback, yeah. well, I'm giving more feedback. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Jensen. Um, I, I agree with uh, my colleague, with Vice Mayor Deshaug's comments, and um, I, I also, uh, with regard to 50, the, uh, the consolidation of 51A and 51B, it just, unless, uh, of course, you have the data and people are going to the bus, to the um, to station to catch the either the A or B, it doesn't seem, seems like that's the destination rather than 
people needing to transfer through all the way through that station. So I, I, I would, that's my, my question. My, I, I wonder whether that is um, going to be effective. And I also agree with staff's suggestion and, and with feedback that we've gotten about whether that would reduce reliability by having it go that far. My, um, the, also the issues about the 96, I appreciate, I, I think that that's, I like that it's going to be um, proximal to Eshoy Park. I think that's going to make, once that park's beginning to get built out, and that'll provide opportunities and um, recreational opportunities. So I like that, that new route. And um, the 20, what, the, tw the one that's been eliminated? 21. Right. What my question here is for staff, actually, does this affect our, um, we, we, have, we established our regional housing needs assessment based on our transit corridor, which was Buena Vista, which was partly the 20, the routes down Buena Vista. So I think. The 19, I think. Or the, ni <coughs> the, 19. the 19, right. Yeah. And that one is not being. My apologies, we didn't have a slide for that one, but in our balance scenario, the 19 wouldn't change, and then in the frequent scenario, it would, the current proposal is for it to go away, but like city staff was saying, we have been in discussions about okay. what to do. Well, that's my concern as well. I, I think retention of that kind of uh, supports a lot of decisions that have been made in the past, so thank you. Well, and I'll just add that it wasn't the line 19 paid for in part by developer fees and that, the, fund the TMA, so um, yeah, that's an important one. Councilmember Vela. Yeah, I, I have uh, a lot of concerns about um, the proposal relative to line 19 and, and 96 and just the impact that it's gonna have um, on the future of the city as well as potentially for the fund ongoing funding for AC Transit and ridership because I do think as part of our transportation management, um, what we've been looking at is really trying to um, have, you know, um, make the best use of multimodal um, as well as public transit and really encourage developers to invest in um, and um, start building those behaviors. So um, for to see those changes to 19 in particular um, and 96 as well as what we know is coming um, I think is, is really, really worrisome to me. Um, so just want to make sure that that's noted. Um, I, I will say that having ridden on the O, um, it gets full <laughs> before you even get to like Central Alameda. Um, there's, uh, you know, I'd say like, you know, there have been plenty of times um, that, you know, I've been on it where by the time we're at West Alameda, there's no room for passengers. So I do think that figuring out um, if you're going to get rid of um, the the OX, um, figuring out what happens in that scenario and how we accommodate that or, um, you know, I know you're saying that you make adjustments several times a year. I just don't want a situation where we end up losing riders because West End riders can't get a spot on the O, um, which is like a real problem, <laughs> um, having ridden on it. Um, I, I, the other thing is, uh, you know, and I and I understand um, with, with um, the, the changes with 20 and 21, um, I will say that um, I would certainly want to make sure that that comes back um, in the event that the 21 adjustment is made, um, that in the event that there is um, the modernization project, um, which is going to happen um, at the Oakland Airport, whether it be an expansion or modernization, either of them, 
um, to, to make sure that that's something that is reconsidered moving forward or at least figuring out a line to and from Oakland Airport. It does not make, if you're going to Fruitvale, you're, and, and frankly, because of the changes in many cases, you're having to transfer before you can even, so you're transferring on a bus for many people. Um, so it's not a one seat ride to Fruitvale. At that point, you're not even considering it. You're ordering an Uber, you're you know, going to the airport um, that way. It, it's just not gonna make sense. So, um, and, I, and I will say that the other thought that, and I think it's noted in the draft letter from staff, but really is something to consider is we aren't gonna have that direct route to Fruitvale um, anymore. And for a lot of folks on the East End and, and um, um, Bay Farm in particular, you're now having to transfer, I think it's at South Shore. Um, and again, um, I think, you know, for most most folks, if you're you know if you're a ferry rider, you're you're used to taking the ferry, and, and you know we are trying to expand uh, connectivity first and last mile to the ferry. If you're dependent on BART, which we also know a, a number of our commuters um, utilize BART to get where they're going, um, that is a major connectivity change in terms of first and last mile, and and I do worry because I think that there's a lot of folks who are getting back into. Um, taking the bus and then transferring to BART. Um, when that goes away, I think we're impacting a lot of potential riders. And so um, just want to make sure that that's flagged because if you're not having that one seat and you're having to transfer at South Shore, you're not going to do it. Okay. Um, and Councilmember Harris Spencer? Uh, could you tell me if you want to catch um, the bus from Bay Farm, uh, where we have the senior housing, right, to get to Mastic? How, how will you do this under how will you do that under this plan? The base Use the microphone, oh, please. Sorry. We can all hear you. It's on Island Drive. Yeah. Um, the Bay Farm service would be maintained by W. So then you would need to go from W to 51. You have to transfer, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, where would you transfer? Uh, Broadway and Blanding is a transfer point. That's the first one that comes to mind, but I'd have to take a closer look. And that's to get to Mastic Senior Center on Santa Clara. To catch the 51. 51, mm -hmm. right. Okay, so um, I actually thought that we were trying to provide service uh, direct from uh, the Senior Center to Mastic. Um, but, but uh, and in fact, I say from Bay Farm, it looks like from Bay Farm you're gonna get stuck um, and I agree with Councilmember Vella. I actually like. I actually don't see. I, I see people catching Uber in real life. I actually think this is going to. I mean, and or I actually I don't know what they're going to be doing because uh, it's going to take 40 minutes or something just to get to Bart, and then you're taking Bart. Like it takes a long time, and the bus doesn't show up, and then you wait, right? And you can't actually walk like I know what the mayor talked about too. But that's not on Bay Farm. Right, um, so, and I do appreciate the financial position you all are in and, I, and trying to figure this out. Um, uh, and obviously we're on an island, so we're, um, a little, it's a little trickier to get on and off of an island and be connected to the other community, so I know it's a big ask for you all. But I, in regards to the airport, even though that isn't happening today or tomorrow, uh, they are anticipating an inc a double, at least, in, in passengers. Um, and then we can't anticipate in Alameda, I think, cars, Ubers, of people driving, being or driven to get there. Um, and so I do think that that's something for you all to 
be thinking about at some point. Thanks so much. Um, I'm not seeing any other hands up, so um, we will thank you for your time. Thank you to city staff, and thank you. Thank you. Pay attention to Alameda. We are good bus riders. All right. Okay, Madam Clerk, would you introduce our next item, please? 7C is a recommendation to review and comment on the Port of Oakland's draft environmental impact report for the Oakland Harbor Turning Basin Widening Proce Project and on city staff's direct draft response letter. Um, Was that it? Yes. Yes, all right. <laughs> Thank you, and, and welcome um, uh, Planning uh, Building and Transportation Director Alan Tai. Thank you. Good evening, Madam Mayor, Vice Mayor, and members of the City Council. Um, so we are at it again with another uh, EIR from the Port of Oakland. Um, this, pro this EIR is uh, pertaining to a proposal to widen the turning basin um, for the Port of Oakland, and the Port's intent is to allow more efficient and safer passage of uh, cargo ships, specifically allowing those sh ships to be able to turn around. Um, the public comment for this EIR ends on December 18th. Attached to your staff report is a draft staff cover letter that will be accompanied by uh, uh, thorough and robust uh, appendices that are currently under uh, development by our team of legal and engineering experts. So staff does expect a thorough and robust response to this EIR. Um, tonight we are asking council for input on uh, the, the high level comment letter as well as any comments you see on the EIR. Um, and in the upcoming slides, I would just briefly walk through the project and some of the issues that staff has identified. Um, so the turning basin that we're talking about sits immediately west of Alameda Landing. Um, the blue dotted line on the screen identifies sort of the bowl-shaped edges uh, that form the current turning basin. The current turning basin was created in around 2000, 2002, um, and accommodates ships up to 1,000 feet long. For ships that are longer than 1,000 feet, um, the port says there are restrictions to when the ships can use tugboats and might be additional pilots and daytime restrictions. So the, the port wishes to expand the turning basin in order to eliminate those restrictions. Um, the green circle identifies the, where, where the turning basin, um, the expanded turning basin, and the purple shaded areas identify the amount of land that needs to be um, demolished or removed to make that happen. Um, on the Alameda side, the, the purple shaded area uh, is an area of around six acres. The construction timeline will take approximately uh, two and a half years in totality. 20 months of that will occur here within city limits. Um, the IR describes a number of construction activities that will have impacts Alameda, including demolition, construction noise, truck traffic, as well as pile driving. The, on the truck traffic, the port anticipates 262 truck trips per day, uh, or roughly 20 trucks per hour. Um, good news is they do acknowledge that they will follow the city's uh, noise ordinance and our construction hours, with the exception of dredging activity that happens in the water. Um, dredging activity actually already happens um, in the water and the noise mainly comes from tugboats moving those platforms. But that dredging activity is anticipated to be 24-7 um, for a period of five months, roughly. 
Staff's main points in the letter is really um, raising the point that, hey, the city of Alameda actually has discretionary approval over the project. And this is because the project is inconsistent with the council adopted Alameda Landing Master Plan, uh, which is a mixed use plan with housing, jobs, shopping, and waterfront open space. Uh, the affected property is an 18 acre area that's shown on this slide. Um, that is designated in the master plan as a maritime uh, commercial sub area. We anticipate this to be the jobs component of this mixed use plan. And in 2017, the council um, made that requirement in exchange to allow housing at what's now the Bay 37 development. So by removing six acres of these 18 acres, which is a third, um, that requires a, uh, it, it disrupts our master plan jobs housing balance and it requires a master plan amendment which is subject to the review and approval of the city council. A master plan amendment is a discretionary approval by the city council. It is an action that is subject to the California Environmental Quality Act. The city council gets to make findings for approval. You get to establish conditions of approval, as well as identify appropriate mitigation measures to address construction impacts. And so for those reasons, um, the city council at a future date when the project comes before you will need to rely on this EIR as the environmental document for you to make those decisions. So it's very important now that we communicate to the port that this document contains all of the necessary information for the council to make that decision later, as well as identify all of the necessary um, mitigation measures. And really, uh, the city, the DIR needs to recognize the city of Alameda as a, a responsible agency. The staff letter and our outside experts are also commenting on the adequacy of the EIR to address construction impacts, namely things like transportation, air quality, noise. Uh, sea level rise is a main concern for staff. Uh, we have main, uh, major concerns over the seismic stability of Alameda's North Shoreline and our ability to provide flood protection and sea level, sea level rise in that um, area of Alameda. We're, we're planning a lot of housing in West Alameda. We need to ensure that the shoreline um, protects those future residents. And typically flood and sea level rise improvements and protections are required by the city and DCDC as part of proposed improvements along the shoreline, but the project is not proposing it at this time. The project also does not identify any public access improvements along the waterfront, which is typical of BCDC and city approvals. And to that end, um, staff has drafted a letter for the mayor's signature that we will be submitting to BCDC um, this week. So really, um, tonight we are here to ask for council input. In terms of next steps, we will continue to work on our, with our team of uh, technical experts, including city attorney's office, uh, staff in the public works department to pull together a package. Uh, and with your comments tonight, um, we, we are hopeful that, uh, and we, we plan to submit a robust comment letter by, uh, to the port by the 18th. And it, next steps after that, the, working with the Army Corps of Engineers will need to respond to those comments as part of the EIR process. Should the port pursue the project and prove the project, that would be the time where uh, they will need to come before the city of Alameda for approval of the project. Um, before I wrap up, I do want to acknowledge that the Port of Oakland staff did hold community meetings virtually and in person at the College of Alameda. They have also been available uh, to staff 
um, for any clarifying questions, and we look forward to working with the port on um, addressing the city's concerns. And that wraps up my staff report. I'm available for questions. Thank you, um, Councilmember Harris Spencer. Thank you, uh, thank you, Director Tai. Um, so I have a question: What outreach has the city done to reach out to the residents that will be most impacted, and the people that the kids that go to these schools over this two-year period? Yeah, at this time we are still trying to understand um, the extent of the impacts. Definitely, uh, the nearest neighborhood would be the Bay Thirty Seven neighborhood, as well as the Tripoint neighborhoods. Um, when the project is approved, I mean that that would be the time to um, also engage residents. But um, we we will be uh, informing them that this is an ERR process. We we have information on the city website as well. Is there a reason why we don't like you know other projects if it's happening within 300 feet of their or yards of their home, we mail them postcards? Is there a reason why we're not doing anything like that sooner rather than later so that they could like attend these meetings and know that this is happening? Yeah, so the responsibility for notification falls on the Port of Oakland and the city staff has communicated that to the port and the port staff has also agreed to um, extend their outreach. Okay, so um, I haven't, but so far they have not, right? They did not send postcards to these residents. I don't know if they've sent postcards, but they have told me that they have reached out to residents on the West End regarding the community meeting for, uh, that happened at, at the College of Alameda. Of course, there was very little turnout from Alameda residents. Ex exactly. I also think it's, it is the, uh, the nature of the topic. Um, people understand airport impacts and concerns. Turning basin isn't something that the general public will really understand. What what it involves, but so I agree there. But I think that wait wait wait, wait wait let the staff member finish his comments and then you'll continue yours. Please continue, Mr. Tai. That that wraps up my comments. All right, thank you. Back so to I you, can continue now. Yes, because I appreciate Mr. That. Tai finished his he, comments. He has been finished. We don't talk he about each finished. other, including myself. Thank you. Uh, so it's nice to not be interrupted by you. Uh, so my concern is that we have people that are living where this is going to happen and the public comment period is ending. They, they did not attend the meeting. I went to the meeting. There were very few people from these areas. In fact, probably none. The people that were there from Alameda uh, were, I believe, paid there to be there because they represented labor, for instance. Um, and when you're talking about, you know, so, so I'm afraid that it's gonna be too late for them to actually be getting involved in this. And the impact of the two years of having this dredging and noise and trucks all the time, uh, why would the city not be reaching out to them soon uh, instead of waiting? Instead of waiting. Yeah. Uh, uh, city manager, did you want to, or Mr. Tai, go ahead. And by the way, I'll just um, let you know that I just heard from Matt Davis from the Port of Oakland, who said that we mailed postcards to residents in the. Um, in the area, and so I asked for a mailing date, and I expect to hear from that, but you were gonna say, Mr. Yes, I was also gonna add, just through the CEQA process, even though there is a deadline for comments, anybody can write letters to the port and submit comments up until the adoption, final certification of the EIR. And so we have seen that happen, and so th just because it's after the 18th doesn't mean the members of the public won't 
I can't, uh, can't comment. And uh, I think one of the comments that we will share with the port is, yeah, we, you have to do more outreach. And Mayor, may I just say, okay. we'll obviously look at the addresses that the notices were sent to, but we're also happy. We have a relationship with the HOA for Bay 37. We're happy to contact them directly and make sure they're aware of this and then share our draft comment letter and, and provide them with a more direct opportunity. I mean, typically it's the applicant who does that noticing, but we'll, we're happy to reach out to them. And what, what was the date of that meeting? November the 13th, I want to say. And I'm told that postcards were mailed between October 3 and October 5. Um, okay, so we know the port's listening, so they've heard you say that you will ask them to do more outreach to residents. Okay, other clarifying questions, council members? I've got a few. Yeah. You go first, council, uh, Vice Mayor. Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Um, so in looking at the staff report, um, on the section of the discussion uh, number three, provide adequate mitigation measures for construction impacts. One, two, three, four, five. There are um, five bullet points, geotechnical impacts, seismic impacts, construction transportation impacts. Um, when I look at the one, two, three, four, when I look at the fourth slide, um, that shows um, the uh, warehouse, uh, well, not warehouse, but um, the, um, the building space that's removed, that at risk of being removed, which I think, as you said earlier, is one, uh, almost one-third of the space. Um, why not also take a look at fiscal impacts um, that, um, that uh, the, the city itself um, 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 might be subject to, or might, uh, so fiscal impacts, for example, let's assume uh, that, you know, um, Bay Ship and Yacht, I think it's Bay Ship and Yacht, right, um, does some, or who, whoever's there, does some amount of economic transaction, sales tax generation. So why not then say that if you take away one third of the um, building space, then, you know, you're also affecting the sales tax um, generation by one third, so there's a fiscal impact. Um, if you're selling the property um, from what it is relative to what it will be, there's also a real estate transfer tax impact. Um, so one of the things that we might want to do on our end is um, understand or analyze what are the um, fiscal impacts um, to uh, revenues that accrue to the city of Alameda. And then, you know, over a 20... Question. Yeah, it, so, because I don't, I don't see fiscal impacts and then possibly take a look at, um, you know, take a look at the stream of revenues that would occur over 20, 30 years and figure out what's the amount, what, what is the, the um, direct impact. And then there's also an indirect impact. Um, the business there might have economic relations with local companies. Um, uh, so those are secondary indirect impacts. So uh, how about economic impacts? So, yeah. Uh, Thank you, uh, Council Member. Um, so I would uh, generally explain that under the California Environmental Quality Act, mm -hmm. uh, environmental documents have to pertain to any foreseeable direct change in the environment. So uh, some cities have tried to argue that economic impacts um, mm -hmm. are environmental impacts, and generally that's a difficult thing to argue unless you can directly e correlate that you know, economic impacts, loss of 
revenue or you know economic activity results in blight and the blight mm. becomes physical yeah. um, what I would say though is uh, given that this project requires mm. a master plan amendment mm -hmm. that, that is certainly a factor that the city council can yeah. have in terms of considering the future it, master plan amendment proposal and what we could do is we could calculate it um, and then you know that Frankly, could be a leverage point on our on our end for the mitigations that mitigations that you're um, bullet pointing in, in number three. So we might want to still calculate it, even if you know CEQA says something about fiscal and economic impacts. So, FYI. Thank you. Okay, I'm Councilmember Rivella. Um, I, so I had questions. Um, this uh, particularly about the removal and the impact um, on the tube. And I, I understand that there's some mitigation that we're asking for in there about like the the crossing the you know the water tack or water shuttles that sort of thing, that doesn't um, necessarily account for the. I'm just looking at the timeline. I'm thinking about the construction that we have planned at out at Alameda Point, um, as well as just the the overall commercial um, utilization that we and needs we have for the uh, for the tube. Um, so. Other than the shuttles, are there other things that we're thinking about in terms of how we're going to mitigate and, and address that? I just, not many communities have the same constraint of, um, and, and in particular for West Alameda, having the constraint of just that one um, access point. And, and we all have been there when a truck breaks down or there's traffic um, in the tube. And, and just with the amount of heavy duty vehicles and vehicular traffic going in and out. Um, what the wear and tear is going to be on the roads, all of those sorts of things, and then juxtapose. Uh, so, with the, with the construction that we have planned, so if you could kind of talk a little bit more about if there's other things that we could ask for or address relative to the mitigation, those are my concerns. I, one one thought that I had is maybe even thinking about the timing of when um, when their trucks are allowed to kind of enter or leave. That's something that we've done in the past. Um, in order to mitigate, and that may also be connected to the noise um, mitigations to just say that the trucks can enter the site at a certain time uh, um, or leave at a certain time. So just that might be something, but I don't know if you've um, thought of some other mitigations or if that's, I'm sure it's something staff is considering, but. Um, yes. yes, absolutely. Um, at the last appendix to the letter is actually staff's uh, proposed um, changes to the mitigation mm -hmm. measures report, just call it that um, generally. Um, we, we do recognize that there may be cumulative impacts based on the project. I mean, this is over the course of two years, right. adding 25,000 truck trips to all of the traffic that's already happening in town. So some of the proposals that we're making is, hey, there's an access issue in the city. You know, can you contribute to the water shuttle? Mm -hmm. uh, we will need easements on the other side for mm -hmm. future crossing if that is part of the plan. But it is ultimately also on the applicant to come up with uh, mitigation measures. So um, as part of our comment letter, we will put that back on the report um, to say, hey, yes. Uh, and, 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 and the ideas that um, you just gave are, are things that we could add to the comments as well. Okay. I, I have a, a follow-up question, which is just, and I, I appreciate thinking, being forward thinking about the easements and the and the shuttle. Uh, again, I, I do think that we may need to kind of clarify a little more in terms of just the overlapping construction and, and um, 
you know, heavy vehicle equipment utilization, especially we've just invested a lot of money on those roads. Um, and, and I don't think that we were necessarily anticipating this sort of uh, wear and tear on them. Um, and we, we obviously have a number of other roads and, and infrastructure needs. So I, I do think that it would behoove us to expressly address that somehow. Um, if we haven't thought about that or, or how, I'd be interested to kind of hear thoughts from staff about how we could more explicitly address that scenario. And then also thinking about the commercial um, access needs of West Alameda in particular, because I don't know that that's necessarily addressed um, by the water, water shuttle. And, and so I don't know what staff, um, if staff has any ideas of how we can kind of ask that a little bit more pointedly and around the commercial access, just because it, it seems to be something that is going to be an issue, especially with the businesses that we have out there and access. And uh, if yes, um, let's see, I'm, I could see a city manager and, and um, Mr. Tai who wants to go first. Uh, if I may, um, please. One of the slides um, regarding the impacts, I, uh, staff has identified that before the project can bring move it up forward, which one it there is? has to be a. Mr. I mean, Tom? Who else? No, did you, uh, you were referring to a slide. Do you want to bring uh, it back Sure, up? yes, please. Uh -huh. There we go. The first bullet there, City of Alameda approved construction <laughs> control, uh, okay, traffic control is. plan. Okay. So um, yes. because the project, staff is saying the project will require city council approval, just as you have approved previous development projects, there is a traffic control plan. And the traffic, currently the proposal by the port is to meter the 262 trucks per day, letting one truck go once every three minutes, but the metering could be adjusted so that it can account for different traffic patterns too. So that is something that can be determined. Uh, back to you, Council Revella. Is it possible, I mean, if they have a current plan on it, is there a reason we wouldn't specifically respond to some of those things now to say, metering not so great, especially if, if we can't control the hours or if we can't, um, you know, or if there's these other impacts, it just seems like that sort of strategy seems to not consider what our current and future needs are gonna be with, I'm just thinking we're planning, we have major plan, the reshape plan is gonna be going through. It's just a lot of big vehicles. It's not just these vehicles. Mayor, may I just yes, chime please. in? And it's just something I'm just putting out there that we, yeah. since it is kind of just generating ideas for the port to respond to, and it may not be feasible, but we also have, I mean, could there be some of this that happens by barge and avoids the tubes altogether and just uses the waterways to bring, especially if you're talking about dredge materials and other things. So that's something we could put out there because um, I think trying to get at your point is just trying to reduce the number of trips and avoid the impacts to the tubes altogether. Um, and that's the only way I could think that that might occur. I'm sure there are feasibility issues with that, but we could ask them to consider some mitigations. Another thing would be, you know, for the tricks that, trips that occur, whether through CEQA or through the master plan, whether or not there could be road mitigation fees or other things that kind of mitigate the impacts to our roads, because they it will put wear and tear on the roads and we'll need to replace them faster if, with that many trips. So we can kind of suggest things like that as well. Um, 
Yeah, you know, Councilmember Jensen's had her hand up, so I'm going to go to people who haven't spoken yet, including myself, and then we'll go back to people for their second uh, bite of the apple. Councilmember Jensen. Um, thank you. I don't know if you can answer this since the, this is a proposal coming from the port, but was there any, if you look at the map, there are um, places in on the port side that, um, including the Howard Terminal, which is not exactly right there, but also the there's the recycling um, Schnitzer. Schnitzer recycling, which could be, they could expand their widening site to not affect Alameda, it seems like. Yes. So I would suggest that be included. Yeah, so, so what they're proposing is actually uh, based on several scenarios. Um, the problem with shifting the green circle over to the west, or, or the left, my left, is um, it would also impact base ship and yachts uh, maritime facilities on the Alameda side. And in fact, uh, we believe it was base ship and yacht that voiced that opinion earlier on in the scoping stage where the port had um, shifted the circle a little bit over towards Alameda landing. So. Uh, well, it would affect what they're going to be purchasing from base ship and yacht. Right. I mean, the, the yeah. Land. So, so uh, there's. I mean, I, unless the circle is just shifted north as well. Right. That's what I'm saying. That, to the that Oakland side. They Avoid. could. Yeah. They could, or perhaps they asked to purchase Schnitzer, and they said no. I I don't know the conditions, but it just appears to me that it's a it's a big it's a large burden on Alameda, and the port owns more than. Um, just, there's just a couple parcels there that aren't part of the port's um, operations. And uh, we, we all know that they were going to sell the Howard Terminal to the A's or to the city of Oakland and the county. So that's um, something that could be suggested at least. I personally just think that this is going to be very burdensome for the city and um, without a lot of, a lot of rewards for the city of Alameda that my other question about inadequacies or, or my concerns, the environment, um, Estuary Park is right there and there is a small marsh at Estuary Park that will be much closer to, um, well, first it'll be disrupted by the, the construction, this, this um, small marsh at the east, southeast end of Estuary Park, um, right under the park where it says park right there. There's a little marsh that apparently is environmentally sensitive. And um, so that's something that will be affected by all of this construction. I'm also, with regard to the, uh, the construction, that, so that's the environment, my environmental concerns. My other environmental concerns were raised um, by my colleagues, but also in the letter about the shoreline integrity. And I understand that in pre previous um, turning basin widenings, the integrity of the shoreline, especially on the Alameda side, has not been um, not been as, as uh, the integrity has not been up to standards that we would would want. And um, now in the in an era of sea level rise, that's really totally critical for for this area right here, which has had long had um, long had the wharf and and the major warehouses on it. So the um, construction mitigation and construction issues, I also think um, that we should be 
in addition to the neighbors, isn't uh, I believe that the Alameda Unified um, Kitchen, they're moving their kitchen and their other site somewhere close to um, a little bit west, southwest of where this is going to be? Uh, not shown on the map. Okay. It's I, right I could below. be wrong, but I, it's my recollection that there were the AUSD yard and kitchen are um, right there near North Housing. And then, then of course, right. there's the um, Coast Guard housing that will be impacted and affected. And has the Coast Guard been involved in these discussions at all? Uh, we do not know. Um, finally, to um, Councilman Ravella's point, The oldest vehicular tube, the posy tube, is the oldest vehicular tube in the world, according to Wikipedia. And it's concrete on top of mud in the estuary. And so I just want to be really clear that this um, impact on the tube, on, on the transportation, and on the safety of the tube is, is really critical. And there needs to be a, a much attention to the both the mitigation and the, the standards for, for the construction to. But, so that was a question about what the, what they would be, right? Because we're doing clarifying questions. Yeah. Um, Great. So you know, Mr. Timon, I'll have to um, interrupt you for just a moment. It is 1047. And Council, we need to do a motion because we have a few more items to hear. We have items um, remaining um, 7D, the TEFRA, which is time critical, has to be seen. Uh, has to be um, heard tonight. And then we also have the, um, the item uh, 5N that was pulled from the consent calendar, which will be heard when we finish the regular calendar. And then uh, city manager's report. And I know there are speakers, um, public speakers, waiting to, um, waiting to speak on oral communications. So I don't want this to be an all-nighter, but I want to respect um, our public who are here. So I would entertain a motion to go all the way through oral communications if we wanted to set a time certain, although um, uh, let's, I'm, I'm open to discussion, but um, let's keep it moving because if the clock strikes 11, then it's a moot point. Councilmember Ravella. Um, uh, Madam Mayor, I'd be fine working up until midnight. I do have an early morning flight, and so um, I'm, I would want that. To, I, I would want to have a time certain to, to conclude, um, but I, you know, I do think that we need to. We have one more regular agenda item after this, and the pulled and then the pulled calendar. consent calendar item. I'm, I'd be fine uh, hearing those two with oral communications. Uh, All right, okay, but not to go later than midnight. Correct. And hear those. Okay, is there a second for that motion? Second. Okay. All those, oh, Councilor Harris Spencer had your hands up. Yes, I wanted to speak because 5N is not time critical, and I'd rather give time to, um, we already heard that earlier, uh, to finish the critical items, but then uh, let our public speakers speak earlier. I, I think that other item could come back as 6A uh, or whatever. Well, I'm sensitive to um, what staff has told me about what crowded agenda we have for the next meeting, Councilmember Harris Spencer, which is the last meeting of the year, and there are things that need to get done by then. So, and I don't think the pulled consent calendar item is a very complicated one. 
So I'm, I'm satisfied with um, Councilmember Vela's motion. And it was seconded, right? Councilmember Jensen seconded. Okay. Um, and we need four votes to pass, correct? Three, four. Okay. <laughs> All those in favor, um, please signify by stating aye. 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 Any opposed? Opposed. Motion carries four to one. Okay. Um, Councilmember, uh, no, I think uh, Mr. Ty was answering Councilmember Jensen's question. Was that correct? That's yes. correct. Um, Please staff continue. doesn't believe the construction impact would affect the tubes, but we will certainly add that comment into the comment letter to make sure that that is studied. Okay, um, I'm going to go next, and Councilmember Jensen, it's like um, you and I were uh, on the same page, but we haven't talked about this. I um, also had in my questions, um, shouldn't more of the Oakland land be sacrificed? And um, I did note that the A's, um, I'm sorry, City of Oakland, but they're not coming back. Um, I mean, they're, they're, they're going um, and um, wherever they're going, but it's not Oakland. So there's Howard Terminal, it's Port Property. And um, Schnitzer Steel, gosh, if um, if they left uh, yesterday, I, um, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't be too soon. Um, so the and then as far as Bay Ship and Yacht, great company, local company, we love them. They do good work, but I think they could be. We could work with them. Um, the port could work with them. Hi, port. I know you're listening. Um, to you know, to shift that turning radius, but. I do not see why the little city of Alameda compared to the big city of Oakland is bearing all the burden. And I'll just tag in my other question, which I really think is a threshold question. Um, what if we were to just say no to the port expansion? I mean, gosh, 1,000-foot container ships sounded pretty big to me, and now we're talking 1,300, and what comes after that? And we are not the only um, Northern California port. There is the ports of Stockton and Sacramento. Um, farther south, there's um, Long Beach. Those are busy ports. So I don't. I don't know why we feel a burning need, um, why Alameda would feel a burning need to support this expansion that takes away acres of our land, contributes to the instability of the shoreline, and for what again? So I, I would like to um, contemplate the possibility of just saying no. Um, and then, but if um, this were to proceed with mitigations, and, and I know Mr. Tai, you answered um, questions that I emailed to you and the city manager earlier, but this truck traffic, I mean, that is concerning. 262 trucks a day every three minutes, and that's, as, as has been noted, that's not the only, those aren't the only trucks that'll be there. I know for a fact that the port is transitioning to zero emission um, trucks, because I was at a very um, exciting uh, rollout of those. And so, and also there was just um, the climate mayors are circulating a letter. I'm part of the climate mayors of the country that are circulating a letter to sign on to the um, Environmental Protection Agency supporting President Biden's program to provide more infrastructure for these um, trucks, medium and heavy duty trucks to be zero emissions. So could we require that a certain percentage of the trucks um, attached to this um, this uh, project be uh, zero emission? 
Absolutely. Given that this project will require a city <laughs> council. My colleague wants 100 percent. I'm just, you know. So, so go ahead, Mr. So the city council has prerogative to adopt conditions of approval to address all of the uh, suggestions uh, you're making, Madam Mayor, as, as well as Council Member Vela regarding mitigations um, related to road wear and tear. Those are conditions that staff believes are related to the project and that those are things that you can ask for when the project comes before you. Okay, so please make a note of that to have it in the staff report when it comes back to us. And then the, um, we've learned from previous projects and I can't remember which specific one, it was an Alameda point, but we were getting all kinds of complaints about speeding trucks, big trucks speeding and down these roads where the kids are going, you know, crossing to go to school and we came to find out that the truckers were getting like a bonus for the number of, of deliveries they could make and they were exceeding our speed limits and APD certainly did the, the monitoring and issued tickets but then that's taking our police you know, from the city streets. So what we required in whatever project that was, but I think you know because we emailed about it, is we required there to be tracking devices in the vehicles that the whoever their, um, their employer was could see them on a map where they were, could see their speeds. And, um, and, and that was a way of controlling that. So that burden shouldn't be on us. Can we require that as well? Absolutely, and all of the above can be part of the construction traffic control okay. plan that is approved by the city council. Okay, will that go to planning board first? Is that yes. how that works? Okay, okay, and then, um, uh, yeah, I think that's that's all for me for now. Um, Councilmember Vela. Could we also require air monitoring and, um, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, different control mechanisms for, for the dirt and control relative to that, like dust yes. coverings and uh, watering things down? Absolutely, right. A lot of those are already s required by state law, uh, okay. but we can certainly ensure that there's adequate monitoring and reporting. I, I think my concern is is that we've seen on a number of projects violations happen and so my question is just what can we do to the mayor's point of preventing violations so understanding that yes state law says we have to do certain things certain mitigations need to be in effect um, but but what could we do beyond that to ensure compliance is really my question. Thank you. Um, Madam Clerk, Clerk, do we have public comment? We do not have public comment. Oh, on. you know what, so I'm gonna close public comment and this is all council. Oh wait, um, I'm sorry, do we, one person. Sorry, okay, down. never mind. Okay, uh, so we, we won't do discussion, clarifying questions still. Councilmember Harris Spencer. Uh, thank you, I, I wanted to add, so there will be noise monitors then? Yes, that's another item that can be requested as part of the council approval so and, when the, and, and part of the EIR comment yeah. period. Okay, and when this work is happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week for two years, um, is there some way to actually simulate that so that we actually know what we're getting into? Uh, so just for clarification, the 24-hour operation is really just the dredging and the port says that the dredging activity is already happening as part of um, their routine maintenance. Um, but noise monitoring can be something the city council can impose as a condition of approval. Well, my question goes to the how are we going to 
inform our residents of what they're getting into if we sign off on this thing? Uh, All of the impacts, the, right, the noise, the air quality. Yeah, so we, we had discussed uh, asking the port to do more outreach um, as part of this comment period, so as well as after. Yeah, but my question really goes to simulating it because I don't know that we, I don't know exactly what impact this is going to have. Is there some way to give us more information of what will this actually, you know, feel feel like? What are people going to be exposed to? What are they going to be listening to? And if the dredging is happening right now, you know, I don't know. Are they being impacted by it right now? Uh, but the exposure for over two years, uh, I'm not sure that that's being communicated clearly of what that really will feel like living through. Yeah. So I don't know what else we can do can, to get more information yeah. of that. I can talk a little bit about it. The ER describes the uh, impact to the residents. Um, well, the way the ER describes the construction impacts to be, and the noise particularly, to be shielded by the existing buildings and the warehouses. Um, so if you were a Bay 37 resident and you were living on the first two floors, you will likely not be able to uh, uh, hear the construction noise, but for residents on the third floor and above, um, they expect the noise levels to exceed the city's noise ordinance by like four decibels. Not significant, but still uh, it, it would exceed it, and that's how it was described in the EIR. Okay, so can we not allow that then, that they cannot go over the city's limit? Because that is the highest maximum point that we allow. We certainly don't you know, expect people to be ex exposed to that for two years. Yes, so uh, that would occur in the nighttime scenario, and we can require, uh, we can also impose certain limits to the construction hours as part of the city council approval. Just because our noise ordinance sets sort of the maximum ranges um, doesn't mean the city council cannot, in order to address a particular concern, um, further reduce those hours. And will that be for two years that so they'll be subjected to a little over the maximum at night? Is, you said at night? At when night, there's like, like a home yes. trying to enjoy their home, right. they're going to be subjected to the maximum? And I think the construction timeline is also something that the council could have some control over as part of your approval of the project. So I'd suggest some mitigation so that people are not exposed to the over the maximum for over two years. In so no what, event, I don't think it should ever go over the maximum. So what I'm hearing is maybe a comment back to the port that looks at different construction schedules to minimize those types of noise impacts. Okay, other not, clarifying questions? Oh, and from the city manager, yes? Just quickly, not just schedule. I mean, schedule in terms of time, but I mean, also during the night, right? Maybe reducing the hours and things like that. Thank you. Vice Mayor Desa. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, further clarifying questions. Um, you know, it seems to me that there's going to be considerable um, economic impacts um, and um, whether or not they're a part of the um, uh, CEQA process or not um, is certainly going to uh, create some trauma on the city of Alameda. So how, how wedded are folks to this um, idea of, of funding the um, free wa public water shuttle for two years. I mean, I, I, to me, I think the trauma is such that 
we really should be looking beyond two years if, 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 if this is going to be meaningful or not. Um, so I would um, throw that out there that, you know, that's something that, that I definitely am, am interested in. Um, another clarifying question is, um, so Bay Ship and Yacht has, um, looks like they, they have like some ships that are kind of perched at the, where the bottom of the circle it will be. Um, so are they going to move those closer to the edge of the wharf? Or, or so how how, how what what are the, what's going to happen to those ships that are do you do you know where I'm talking about yeah right the closest to Estuary Park can we have the graphic up please yes yeah, so uh, my understanding is some of those ships are um, so currently w the uses in the warehouses include storage of coffee but also staging for the tugboats. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of the boats that uh, you're identifying maybe right there yeah, exactly. are related to the tugboat operation that, mm -hmm. would, be, that would move um, should construction proceed. And the idea is uh, it would not affect the bay ship and yacht operations, which are on the opposite side of this bowl. So, okay. Correct. So, but in, so in the purple, though, um, that's also bay ship and yacht, too? No. No, uh, okay. That property was owned by Bishop and Yacht, mm -hmm. and I believe two years ago was sold to a private investment company. Okay. Staff has reached out to the property owner, but have not heard back. Okay. Uh, a question for legal staff. So um, if that portion is taken away, um, not only, I mean, that clearly affects the master plan in place, but does it in any way implicate, you know, whatever DDA was struck with regard to that? Selena Chen on behalf of the city attorney's office. The DA does not cover um, this portion. It's just covered in the master plan. That oh, okay. It would require a master plan amendment. Okay. Darn. All right. Other clarifying questions before we go to public comment? Councilmember Herrera Spencer. Thank you. Um, is it public information how much um, the port is paying the property owners, like Bay Ship and Yacht? I don't know that there's an agreement, but that would be a question for the port, whether there's any agreements in place for the port to purchase the land. So can the city find out how much our property owners are getting paid to do this? Uh, I will say that the ARR had a, an estimate, um, but I don't have that number on top of my head. Um, so, so the EIR had to project the cost for the entire project, and they made an assumption for the amount that would cost support to purchase private property. Um, but that was a figure um, published a couple years ago. We could find that number and um, report it back to the council. Thank you. Okay, I'm not seeing other hands up, so let's go to our public comment. Um, we only have one. Uh, oh, they have lowered their hand. Lowered their hand. Well, with that, we will close public comment. And um, I believe you have, um, well, anything else you, we didn't say? I think we, we managed to weave comment into questions, but I think we gave Mr. Tai and the port folks who are listening a lot to consider. <coughs> um, and it's 11.05. We got a few more items to cover, but is there anything anybody else needs to add before we um, move on to our next item? Councilmember Jensen. Um, thank you, Madam Mayor. I just want to agree with you with your comment as well. Um, if there's any 
I, I think we should be very strong in the letter and, and suggest to the port or direct the port to use the port's land for the turning basin and not Alameda. If this project is to go forward at all. Um, and Mr. Ty, I saw your letter to BCGC for my signature, and it's, it was great. Thank you. Um, all right. I'd like to add something. Please. I want to thank staff. I thought, actually, like I did have the opportunity to attend a meeting uh, at the college, and it was a good meeting put on by the port, but I really thought that staff did a really good job on coming up with this uh, draft response, and it's, been, it's obviously been a lot of time and thought put into this, so thank you. Thank you. Okay, with that, um, we thank you all for your comments, and we will close this item, and we will move on to item 7D. Madam Clerk, would you introduce that item? Um, yes, uh, public hearing under the Federal Tax Equity and Financial Responsibility Act of 1982 to consider adoption of a resolution approving the issuance of the California Municipal Finance Authority multifamily housing revenue bonds by an outside agency and aggregate principal amount not to exceed $35 million for the purpose of financing and refinancing the acquisition, construction, improvement, and equipping of North Housing Senior Apartments and certain other matters related thereto. All right. Um, good evening, Ms. Fitz. You want to introduce yourself and um, give us your presentation. Good evening, I am Lisa Fitz, Housing and Human Services Manager with the City of Alameda. I'm joined by Ms. Paris House, Project Manager, and uh, Ms. Sylvia Martinez, Director of Housing Development at the Housing Authority of the City of Alameda. And tonight, we will be talking to you about the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act, also known as TEFRA, a public hearing for the North Housing Senior Apartments. Next slide, please. Or oh, I forgot I can click. Uh, the purpose of the TEFRA hearing is to provide the public with an opportunity to comment on the use of tax-exempt bond proceeds. Tonight, we're, we are referring to bonds that will be issued by the California Municipal Finance Authority for the North Housing Senior Projects, also known as Lynette Corner. <coughs> The bond payments will be the sole responsibility of the developer and the housing authority. The bonds will not be a debt of the city, nor do they obligate the city in any way. So now I will turn it over to Ms. Howes and Ms. Martinez to provide more information about the project. All right. And given the late hour, we appreciate your brevity. Thank you. And go ahead and make the microphone the right level for you. Yes. Welcome. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks, everyone. Um, hello, my name is Paris House. Lisa mentioned I am a project manager with the Housing Authority of the City of Alameda. And again, as Lisa mentioned, I'm joined by our Director of Development, Sylvia Martinez, along with Jared Suzuki. He's online from um, our bond issuer, CMFA. Um, so to kind of go in a little bit high level of what the purpose of a TEFRA hearing is, um, as Lisa again mentioned, the um, intent is to inform the public of our, again, attempt to use tax-exempt financing. This is a requirement of both the IRS and the California Debt Allocation Committee, also known as CITLAC, for any qualified residential rental projects that have received a, an allocation, such as uh, North Housing Seniors. Next. 
And so before I go into the project description, I'm going to give just a brief overview of the Housing Authority of the City of Alameda, which I'm sure you're all familiar. So we were originally established in 1940, and we provide uh, both housing and resident assistance along with developing affordable housing. We have a nonprofit affiliate, Island City Development, that uh, owns, acquires, operates, and manages affordable housing. What brings us here today is that in 2019, the um, agency was awarded 12 acres of land formerly owned by the US Navy. As part of that development plan, five, a total of 586 units were entitled on that site. North Housing Seniors brings 64 of those 586 units. To go more into North Housing Seniors, so again, it will be serving a total of 64 units serving both seniors and formerly homeless senior veterans aged 62 and over. The building will include a mix of 40 studios, 23 one-bedrooms, and one dedicated two-bedroom manager's unit. Um, affordability levels will range between 30% and 40% of the area need and income. And to just give an example, uh, for a two-person household restricted at 30% of area need and income, uh, individuals with maximum income cannot exceed approximately 35,000. And to talk more about the timeline, we are very excited that uh, this project is slated to start construction at the top of 2024 with the planned completion of fall 2025. Additionally, uh, we have a concurrent project that is 100% permanent suburb housing um, consisting of 45 units that tracks along the same timeline. Construction started at the top of 2024 and ending in um, summer to fall 2025. That completes our presentation, and we are available. We appreciate the City Council support to this point um, on the project. Thank you, and we know this is required and it's time critical. And thank you for your presentation, Madam Clerk. Do we have public comment on this item? One more. Okay. So, any council um, clarifying questions before we go to public comment? Let's go to public comment. Uh, Sylvia Martinez. Oh, welcome, Speaker Martinez. <laughs> hello, hello. You know, the, this action today really perfects many, many years of commitment from the city council, from the mayor, many, 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 many decisions being made um, by your staff and um, many folks in, in town. And it's really wonderful to see this coming to fruition. We thank you very much on behalf of the Housing Authority and our board. Thank you for that. And was that all? Okay, with that, we close public comment on item 7D. Clarifying questions or motion? I'll make a motion to approve, unless my colleagues have questions. I'm happy to second. All right, we've had a motion by Councilmember Jensen, seconded by Councilmember Harris Spencer. All those in favor, please signify by stating aye. 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 All those opposed, <coughs> you abstain, signify. That motion passes unanimously. Bring us those um, affordable housing units yeah. as soon as possible. Right thank you so much. Thank you. All right, thank you all. Good night. Okay. Um, next um, up, we have five N. Five N. So this is where we go to the um, the consent calendar item that was pulled, and that is being presented by uh, Madam Mayor. This is a consent calendar item, so we do not have a presentation, but we're okay. happy to answer questions answer from the questions. council. Okay. And I believe was it you, Councilor Rivera Spencer, who pulled? Okay. Clarifying questions. All right. So I pulled this item. Um, did you already read the title? Oh, please. I need the title. Recommendation to authorize the city manager to execute an 
intellectual property, property transfer agreement with Seth Hamlin assigning intellectual property rights in the city's anchor logo and the library logo from Hamlin to the city in exchange for the payment of $100 to Hamlin and seek additional intellectual property protections for the, such logos. Okay, so I was mayor when uh, the city manager, Jill Kymack, and uh, the name here is Seth uh, Hamlin. Uh, he's the husband of the PIO, Sarah Henry. I don't think that was disclosed here. Um, and for transparency and actually what is the process, if we have a city manager that wants to adopt or, and create a logo, does that come ever come? Okay, it's coming to council like six years later. Um, what is the process of um, having a new uh, logo adopted? So um, to note, as you did, this city manager, if you're asking her, wasn't, wasn't here at the time. Um, were you the city attorney then? I, I was city not. City attorney wasn't the city attorney at the time. Um, but to the best of your ability, uh, what can you tell us? What I understand is that it was, wasn't was meant to be a city logo. It was meant to be a Love Our Island campaign logo. Um, we do do branding for economic development on occasion, let's say like the shuttle out at Alameda Point. So there are times when we city staff do branding, working with consultants on campaigns. My understanding is that later it became kind of, there was a process and I wasn't here, so I'm not defending it one way or the other, but that then kind of there was a lot of support for it, you know, maybe that's somewhat arguable, but, the, and then became kind of more of a de facto logo, and that that action was not brought to the council um, for approval, um, but the intent, it started as part of a Love Your Island campaign, which would be consistent with other kind of economic development and campaigns that we might have. All right, so Any I- questions? Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, I have a concern that if we're going to rebrand our city that it should come to council. And actually I think it should have been put out for the public to be able to participate in this, not just the husband of the PIO um, and the city manager. I was actually not happy with the process then and I'm, and you know, fast forward, I still think that a process and transparency is important. Um, and uh, as much as uh, that campaign uh, has been well received. I'm not sure that there couldn't have been other ideas from our public uh, that could have also been a good campaign. Um, and I think we do usually try to include the public and council, but now fast forward, we see this, it's the anchor with the heart on it, uh, put on pretty official documents. And so is that, why is it coming to us in, in, in regards to now we're being asked to pay $100 to him for uh, the pro intellectual property rights. So why why do we need to do that? City Attorney Shen, would you address that question, please? Uh, I'm happy to. Uh, Council Member, the reason it's coming to you, uh, as indicated in the staff report, is that um, earlier this summer, uh, my office received a number of questions regarding what intellectual property protections are available to this logo. Um, there were staff members that reported potential misuse. Um, and in response to that question, we conducted the research that uh, essentially out, is outlined in the staff report, which is that um, when the logo was created, there was no, it, uh, we could not locate any written documentation that transferred the intellectual property rights from Mr. Hamlin to the city. 
And without that transfer, um, what the city currently has at best is probably a revocable oral license. And that puts the city's intellectual property rights um, on very shaky grounds because arguably the original creator of this particular intellectual property could order the city to stop use uh, or revoke the license. Given that, um, we proceeded to negotiate the best protection possible for the city given the time that has passed. Um, the $100 um, is necessary because um, under federal intellectual property law, um, if we do not pay for intellectual property, it actually reduces the amount of protection the city uh, would ultimately have. And so we negotiated a, a, a payment that is not um, hugely expensive to the city, but protects the city's intellectual property rights. And, and, that's, <coughs> and that's where we are today. Thank you. So we've seen uh, other, other people will use this now, right? You see it on websites. It's used all over town. So is it the city's intent then to go back to all these people that are using it? Um, and they change, they change the heart. I know can, they, they could do different things with it. Um, and I don't know how close it has to be before the city could then, like, does the city plan to go to you know, the newspapers and other people that use it on their websites and they put it on you know, T-shirts and stuff and prevent them from uh, using it? Uh, who would like to take that? Like, might be too strong. I can tell you that is not our current intent. I think my understanding is that there was some misuse that was using it in a way that, um, you know, wouldn't be consistent with the values of the city, or that you know. So there might be cases, but I can tell you, I don't have it. I don't have any intent on trying to enforce this in some way. I mean, it's something that we would now have the ability to do, and so we'd have those conversations. But I can't tell you that right now. Thank you. Anything further? And we had no public comment, or do we? No. Okay, so we closed public comment on item 5N, and um, I'm looking for a motion to execute the intellectual property transfer agreement with Seth Hamlin, assigning intellectual property rights in the city's anchor logo and library logo from Hamlin to the city in exchange for the payment of $100 to Hamlin and to seek additional intellectual property protections for such logos. Motion? No, um, uh, comment, Vice Mayor Desai. So, you know, the city of Alameda has an official flag, um, which is the anchor. So that flag that you see, that was adopted by the city council when I was a um, senior in high school. So um, I think it's kind of close. So um, I just want to make sure that the anchor logo, as is expressed in our officially city council adopted flag, is kind of separate from this. Mr. Shen. Uh, council member, that's right, this item does not address the flag in, okay. in any way and will not infringe on the flag in any okay. way. Good. So did you want to make a motion to approve? I think someone made a motion. Mm, I don't think um, so. Don't think no, there was wasn't a motion, but uh, can I ask a question of too? Course. With regard to um, Vice Mayor Daysock's question. So can you just confirm, I mean, it would be good now that this has come up, to know that as we look at the um, seal and all of the other things that we use, um, that are graphics that we use often, just to confirm that everything is copyrighted and part of the city. <laughs> so, Council Member, I, I unfortunately cannot confirm that. We did the research with respect to these logos because that was um, what was at issue. 
I would expect that our seal is protected and um, the city, you know, as the city manager indicated, probably uses other um, graphics uh, at other times that I'm not aware of, so I, I can't I, commit to. I would just interject. <coughs> we don't expect you to speculate, Mr. Shen. This was not within the purview, I don't think, of this particular agenda item. If council might like more information on that, perhaps you could bring it back to us in some off-agenda form. If the, if the council so directs, sure. And you know, I, at this moment, I don't even know the totality of the graphics yeah, that the city uses. So, so it, speculation won't help. But if anybody wants to direct council to spend or staff to spend time on that, they could. Or maybe if it's not a problem. Yeah, I would like to direct council to look at the flag and the seal and to probably, ensure probably that not council. You're directing. Excuse me. Oh, yeah. And that would be. I um, And and councilmember Jensen just. Um, yeah, I know you realize this, but individual council members don't direct staff, but you could amend right. the motion I, to include that? But that's that? what I would like. I wasn't okay. directing. I didn't say right. I'd direct them. So I said I would motion? like to do that. If you can make that motion and, and add the direction? Somebody has to make a motion. I'll make the motion. Thank you. With okay. the amendment. Okay. Did you get that, Madam Clerk? Yes. All right. And that motion is seconded by? I'll second. Okay. We've had a motion by Vice Mayor Daysock seconded by... Councilmember uh, Jensen, all those in favor? Can you repeat the entire motion then? Yeah, the motion is to approve the recommendation and then also direct staff to review uh, the flag and the seal. Just those two. <laughs> which, which the vice mayor is pointing out is on my coffee mug, <laughs> which is a water mug right now. But anyway, okay, I, I'll, I'll get to go and vote. Let's do it. All those in favor, please signify by stating aye. 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 Any opposed? Any abstentions? That passes unanimously. Thank you so much. Um, city manager communications are next. Do you, you want me to forego? Just make sure we have enough well, time for the speakers. Um, no, we just would you like to do yours after item nine? Could we flip eight and nine? Sure. Are you okay if with time, that? Then okay. I'm happy to do it. It's lovely of you. Okay, then let's go. Ahead. <laughs> Trying to grab my coffee mug. Um, let's go to oral communications, Madam Clerk. Um, so who's up next? And thank you all in the audience for being so patient and waiting. Okay, let's hear our public speakers on item nine. Okay, the first is uh, Lynn De Leon. Welcome, Speaker De Leon. Thank you, City Manager Jennifer, and also um, for Councilwoman Trish Spencer earlier for trying to hear us earlier. Good evening. My name is Leanne, or should I say good night. I organize with the Alameda Island Philippine X, and I'm a longtime resident of this beautiful island. I've lived here since the 90s with family roots since the 60s uh, because of the Naval Air Base, like most uh, Filipino families. I'm here today to ask for our council members to not turn away at the ongoing genocide happening in Gaza and to use your platform as elected officials to introduce a resolution calling for a permanent ceasefire and to end US funding for Israel's ethnic cleansing. Alameda needs to join cities like Richmond and Oakland and hopefully San Francisco soon, where I just came from, where there were over 2,500 people in long queues, all calling for a permanent ceasefire because too many innocent lives are lost. At least 15,500 Palestinians have been killed by Israel's bombing and ground campaign since October 9th. This includes at least 
least 8,000 children. More than 60 journalists have been murdered. Over 1.2 million people in Gaza have been displaced. I struggle even now to think about what words further to say or what sentiments to convince my elected officials of the heartbreak we are witnessing every day, every hour, every minute. My heart breaks, and I know many of us in Alameda feel it so. And so I'll speak to you what gives me strength and comforts my heart, holding close to my culture and the resiliency of my people, and because I'm fortunate to have two council members from my community. In Filipino, we hold the concept kapwa together, which translates to shared humanity as people who not only survived um, but fought against our colonizers from Spanish colonization to Japanese occupation to American imperialism. The Palestinian national liberation struggle is deeply important to all colonized people. Oppressed people are our kapwa and we might fight and we must fight with them, not as saviors, but knowing our struggles are intrinsically linked together. Alameda City Council, please pass. Please stand for justice. Thank you so much for your remarks. Our next speaker. Garrett Jacobson, or Jacobs, sorry, I don't know where Speaker Jacobs, is it remote or live? Uh, no, they're all in person, yeah. Oh, okay, I think we might have lost some of our yeah, speakers. We might have. Okay, um, our next speaker. Uh, Manal Bejawi? Maybe Bejawi, or you'll tell us. Bejawi. Bejawi, welcome. Hello, good night. <laughs> I implore you to follow the lead of neighboring cities in introducing and agendizing a resolution in a special city council meeting that calls for the following. An immediate ceasefire and end to the genocide in Gaza, an end to the USA to Israel, the release of Palestinian hostages, unrestricted entry of humanitarian aid into all Palestinian territories, the restoration of critical supplies and infrastructure in Gaza, and the respect for international law. The funding of this genocide draws upon our hard-earned tax dollars with over $1 million contributed from Alameda alone. Imagine the transformative impact if this substantial amount were redirected to address pressing needs within our cities. Our community has numerous urgent requirements that deserve attention, as evidenced by the earlier agenda items discussed in this council meeting. The situation demands our collective action for peace, human rights, and international solidarity. Your influence can drive positive change. Fostering a safer and more compassionate world, let this city be a beacon of hope, advocating for policies aligned with justice and humanity for all. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker. Uh, Sarah Hussein. Sarah Hussein. Speaker Hussein. We might have lost her. Uh, Audrey Francis. Speaker Audrey Francis. Next. Claudia Lamb. Welcome, Speaker Lamb. Good evening. It's my first time up here. Welcome. Uh, my name is Claudia. I'm part of the Alameda Families and Friends for a Ceasefire, and I join with the others tonight in a collective call for the Alameda, Alameda City Council to agendize and issue a resolution to call for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza and throughout the West Bank. I'm speaking as a queer social worker who came from Hong Kong to the US during my teenage years. For most of my time in America, I have been living in Bay Farm for almost 10 years. I'm asking for the city of Alameda to call for a permanent ceasefire in the face of a genocide. And yes, Israel is purposefully committing a genocide in Gaza and America is funding it with our taxpayers' money. Let's be clear about it. And of course, we should not be surprised that our country is backing up the Zionist ethnic cleansing project in Gaza, given America was built on genocide in the indigenous communities and the enslavement of African Americans. 
Despite the U.S. government has not called for a ceasefire, 61% of voters in America want a permanent ceasefire. We do not want our taxes to fund bombs that killed over 6,000 children and at least 16,000 people in Gaza. There has been enough blood on our hands. We the people have clarity. We know what is the truth, unlike the mainstream media is telling us. We also know that being anti-Zionist is very different from being anti-Semitic, and we have power to act, which includes demanding our city of Alameda to join people in cities across this country to pressure the U.S. government to call for a permanent ceasefire. We're counting on your action and leadership to stand on the right side of the history. We have the power to help stop the genocide of Palestinian people. Lastly, ceasefire is just the first step. All of us should not stop fighting until Palestine is free. Free Palestine. Thank you. Our next speaker. Uh, Garfield Kingcross, I think, is gone. Okay. I think he's gone, yes. Uh, Sahara Ahmed. Welcome, Speaker Ahmed. Um, good night. As my fellow folks have shared already, my name is Sahara Ahmed. Um, I'm usually better off the cuff, but since it's so late, I wrote some things down. Um, so while I detest the reason that brought me here today, um, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to learn more about these important issues that you all have given attention to tonight, so thank you for that. Um, as a renter and resident of Alameda and um, as an advocate for domestic violence survivors who has worked, who works at a DV shelter, all of the issues you touched upon are intersectional and important to me. Um, I join my new Alamedan friends in the Alameda family and friends for a ceasefire um, to call uh, you to issue an, uh, a resolution for a ceasefire and bravely work to pass it in your next and last meeting for the year. Um, I care about this issue deeply as a post 9-11 Muslim American, as someone with a graduate degree in international affairs and human rights, but mostly because I am a human. Since our shared humanity hasn't been enough to, for the global call for a ceasefire, let me appeal to your political seats. Um, as, a mem as I mentioned, my day job is, a, is at a culturally specific DV shelter and serves predominantly immigrant and refugee community members, Asian Women's Shelter in San Francisco, including a large number of Arab and Muslim women and families. Many people don't know that according to the US consensus, Arab community members are designated as white. They are assigned this whiteness without the social privileges, but as a tool for further dehumanization and further invisibilizing. In my own organization, this makes Arab clients ineligible for federal funds designated for culturally specific purposes. Every day for the last few weeks, I've opened my phone every morning to the most horrendous images of Palestinians being murdered and like many Arab and Muslim community members, have been angered and triggered by the deafening silence of my fellow Thank Americans. Thank you, and your time is up. Thank you very much. Right, our next, I, I'm sorry, I have to give the equal amount of time to every speaker, but you can, you can email your comments to the city clerk, they'll tell you how, and then we can all receive them and put them in the public record. Will you do? Thank you, thank you for your comments, but I would love to have you share them um, by email. Our next speaker? Uh, Faraz Khan. Speaker Khan. Khan. Next speaker? Lauren Koklo. Speaker Koklo. All right, next. Uh, Claire Valderrama Wallace. No. Oh, oh yeah, all right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Else? okay, okay. All right. <laughs> Cam Bui. <laughs> all right, welcome. 
Hi, everyone. Hi. Uh, good evening, good night. Um, I'm Cam Bowie, and I'm here again to ask you to agendize a resolution for ceasefire and an end to all U.S. investment in Israel. Uh, fellow speakers have shared statistics and personal experiences about the prices we've already paid for this investment in Israel, uh, for this investment in what then-Senator Joe Biden has called the most important investment of the U.S., the biggest bang for our buck. His bang comes from our bucks. We could be using that to take care of Californians, Alamedans. We could fund the comprehensive transit lines mentioned today. We could afford to give Veterans Hall hot water. We can afford to give them a kitchen when most of our veterans are, have experienced uh, homelessness or housing insecurity in California. And mostly I'm here to remind you of who we are as Californians. Thank you, Mayor Ashcraft, Kraft, for pointing that out earlier. We are the fourth biggest economy in the world. We contribute 14.2% of the GDP of the US in Q1 of 2023 alone. That's $3.8 trillion. You know, California has an obligation to do this. Historically, we have set the standard for the rest of the nation. LA Times has a series exploring the nation's impact in the nation, and it says no state has had bigger impact in the direction of the US than California. Um, we've led the way with uh, the high school movement in the 1930s to ensure that all students had education beyond elementary school. In UC Berkeley, students led the campaign to divest from apartheid South Africa. And SFSU students demanded the first ethnic studies department in the US that led the way for so many ethnic studies departments in the rest of the world. Thank you so much for your comments. Thank you. All right, and was that the end of our public? All right, thank, thank you all, and thank you so much for, um, for sticking it out um, through this long meeting, um, although not the longest meeting we've had. But, um, and so then we will go back to our city manager for her comments. Great, thank you, Mayor. Um, just want to acknowledge last night that staff convened a community workshop on the Fernside traffic calming and bikeways project. I understand it was very well attended. Um, and to let folks know that there's a second virtual meeting that is scheduled on December 11th. So for anyone who wasn't able to attend the meeting last night, and then there's more information on our website. Uh, East Bay Mud is restoring the pavement on Sherman Street and Atlantic Avenue where they recently installed new water lines. The streets are open to traffic, but there will be lane closures in the area as this work is taking place. Um, Alameda firefighters are collecting new unwrapped toys for their holiday toy drive and have bins located across town at toy stores, coffee shops, city buildings, and fire stations. And this is the first year since the pandemic that they've been collecting toys to distribute to Alameda children in need. And so we need everyone's help to make sure that there are gifts for everyone. Um, and then lastly, we enjoyed seeing so many community members this weekend at the city's winter lights celebration. We had, it was very well attended. And want to remind you to shop local this holiday season as it gives um, so much back to our community. Thank you. And so that was what we voted to go through, those items. So I'm going to adjourn the meeting now, but I want to adjourn it in memory of a very active community member who gave so much to our community who passed away last month, and that is um, Judge Richard Bartolini. And um, many of us know him. I think he did the, um, you know, administered the oath of office to many of us over um, the time that he was a judge. Uh, he. Um, passed away on November 10th at the age of 92 years old. 
He was a graduate of University of California, Berkeley, and of Hastings um, School of the Law. I think it's now called the San Francisco School of Law. And um, from 1977 to 1992, he fulfilled a longtime dream to become <coughs> a judge, served as a judge. And um, he was very active in the community, among other things, with the Alameda Boys and Girls Club and um, Meals on Wheels. And um, anyway, we, um, we extend our sympathy to the family, and we um, remember and appreciate his service to our community. And with that, this meeting is adjourned. We'll see you at the next council meeting, and probably sooner. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, staff, for all your good work. All right. Go home.